we're back in kind of an okay amount of time. Um, we're almost back in a monthly schedule, which I'm really excited about. And I think this is going to keep happening for the next few months as far as I can see. And tonight um, we're going to be talking about one of our favorite filmmakers. And we're doing it on the month of Halloween because John Llewellyn Moxie, who is the person who we are celebrating tonight, and you can hear that motorcycle, I'm sure. Um, it made so many good scary TV movies. He was wonderful. He was amazing. He was my favorite made-for-TV movie uh, filmmaker, and he sadly passed away earlier this year. And what was really unfortunate about his death, besides the fact that he actually died, is that I wasn't able to really celebrate him then the way I wanted to because my schedule has been so harried this year. And it was in the back of my mind that I would do something special for him. And I don't know that this will be completely the way I wanted it to be, because to be honest, there's so much story to John Llewellyn Moxie that I don't know. I did some research on him this week, and it was really hard to find some information about his early years. I mean, before he moved to England from Argentina, and we'll, we'll talk about that briefly. But um, And just things about him. I heard he was a wonderful guy, and he was clearly one of the best filmmakers that television ever saw. But the little ins and outs of his life I have yet to discover. So hopefully as time goes by and more and more people come to appreciate his work, uh, hopefully more story will be left to be told and we can do another episode just like this because he made a gazillion movies and we've already covered several of them on the show, which we'll probably talk about as well. So anyway, let's just get started. I meant for that to be more um, pithy and funny, but I have really bad allergies and I guess I'm not in the mood for pithy and funny. So let's just love on John Llewellyn Moxie tonight. And let me get started by telling you we're here with two people, but one of them is not Nate again. Um, he might be MIA for a while, which creates a little bit of a somber tone too, I guess. And we miss him. But for now, I have somebody filling in for him. But first, I want to introduce my regular co-host, Dan. Hey, what's up? Uh, the thing I like about John Llewellyn Moxie, one of my favorite things is his name, because you have yes. John, John, which is a solid name. You can make it, you could call it, it's biblical, obviously, in many ways. Uh, then Moxie, he's got the Moxie, which is great. And then Llewellyn adds this touch of, ooh, flavor to it, if you, if you know what I mean. Almost like a spicy sort of, mm, Llewellyn, hmm, yes. And so I love the, love the name and the fact that it made so many great films. Yes, I'm in. I'm excited to do this episode. So it's going to be great. Yeah, I am too. And I realize I'm looking at my notes here and I misspelled his last name on the title. And it's just like, wow, that's Whoa. really not respectful at all. And I'm really sorry. But yeah, I love it. I was I was talking earlier before we started recording about how there's this thing called the Moxie moment, which I coined. And like you can do all kinds of stuff with Moxie. So I think for like the subject line for on the on the website to tell everybody what the next episode is going to be. I was like, we're doing Halloween with Moxie or whatever, because, you know, it has so many meanings and it was meant to celebrate all of the things that Moxie is. And he did have a lot of Moxie. I mean, if nothing else, he had a lot of freaking energy because this yeah. guy made like four movies a year. But anyway, before we get running away with our favorite person on the planet, um, here's my other favorite person on the planet. We are here tonight with Bill Ackerman of the Supporting Characters podcast. I almost said Supporting Players just to piss him off. <laughs> but I wouldn't do that to him because I love him. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hey, thank you for having me on the show. I would have been hurt if you had called it supporting players. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but you were telling me somebody else said that, and it just makes me laugh because you brought yes. it up a couple times. But yes. it is the supporting characters, which is a podcast I've been on, and That's I was a great, to be on it. great, great but podcast. Not, yeah, yeah. I have not only have I been on it, but uh, our last guest, 
um, McBeardo McPadden. Mike McBeardo mm. McPadden was on it. And he was wonderful. And you've had lots and lots of great people. Kayla Janice, who I worked with. Justin Kurzweil, of course, from The Story Continues. Um, Mike White, who you've been on his Mike White. Tapes? I That's think, right. I think Bleeding Skull Joe was on there, right? That's right. Yeah, Joe yeah, Zimba. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of people... Them, I'm trying to think of anyone like you know, Stephen Thrower, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people. Uh, Alexander Helen Nicholas, I'm sure, sure people know her stuff. Well, I mean, Stephen Thrower is the one I want to have sex with. I oh. met him briefly. Did you? I did too. Yeah, yeah. At the uh, it was at the Severin thing where they showed Night Killer um, and uh, the Boys Next Door and damn, I'm blanking. Death warmed up, and I oh, introduced I'm so my. Jealous. He was, he was a very nice guy. Very nice he's really, guy. He's we actually were... shy. He's really kind yes. of introverted. Yeah. I mean, we... he's gay. That's why I said I would have him and Justin are the two guys you've had on that <laughs> have sex with. Only gay. We were supposed to record his interview in the house from Don't Go in the House, but at the last minute oh. it, it didn't work out. But that was I had it all arranged with the uh, with the museum that was run out of that house. So. Oh. And I've Almost. been in that house with you, Bill. Yes, that's true. We, we got to watch a screening of the movie in the living room. <laughs> Yeah, which was weird and yeah. awesome. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. I was in New York last year to do one of those Miskatonic talks, and I got really drunk. And uh, and Bill's like, "Let's go to the Dokwon House House." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." And so, like, we went with Kayla Janice and Sam Deegan and my husband David, and we had a really good time. And what I remember most about that, and we're gonna get off topic here. What I remember most about it is I was trying to remember the name of the guy from Auto Man, Chuck Wagner, mm. and I called him Jim. Digbadot or something like that. And Kayla Kayla loved that name and she kept saying it over and over again and she actually like tried to look it up on IMDb. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. It was like Iggy Jimbadal or something. It was like it was like it was like it was like a very Jane's addiction sounding kinda name that you came up with. I yeah, I was I was like I was like the guy from Automan has a really kind of common name and I can never remember it. It's like Igby Igby Jimadop or something. But I was really wasted and it, probably nobody cares I'm telling the story. But anyway, it's a really great memory of mine because it was ridiculous and it made me laugh. And then we saw the movie and it was really fun. So I just, those are and I just, all oh go ahead, I'm sorry. I just remember, like, I, I was walking in with a crew of, like, you know, female genre film authors, like, you know, because I had Sam Deegan with me, Kayla Janice, and you, like, and then we find Alexandra West's book there. Oh, like, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, somebody left her book behind. <laughs> and uh, the one she wrote on 90s uh, slashers, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, yeah, yeah 90s slashers. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just so funny. Um, but, yeah, that was a really fun night. The train ride back wasn't as fun. But, um, yeah, it was a good night. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's go ahead and get started on um, the actual show, the topic of the show. So I'm just going to do a really brief bio on John Lola Moxie, which I put together for the show. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the films he made. That, oh, I should say well, tonight we're talking about two of his great early films, um, A Taste of Evil from 1971 and A Strange and Deadly Occurrence from 1974. Um, I find those movies to be eerie similar, eerie similar, eerily similar um, but uh, we'll see if you guys feel the same. And so we're going to do things a little different tonight. We're actually not going to do a full breakdown of the movies, although we are going to talk about them and we are going to spoil them. So if you haven't seen them, it might be best to wait because these are the kind of movies that you kind of need to see blind, I think, to fully appreciate what they were doing with them. Yeah, um, yes. yeah that helps. But um, anyway, and we'll see if everybody is on the same uh, wavelength as me. So I wrote this review of it for my blog years ago of both films where I compare them. And I'll read that instead of doing the breakdown. And then we'll just dive into the film separately and then together. And then we're at the end of the show. So let's get started. 
So John Lalamoxie was born in Argentina, but relocated to England and found work as an editor. He then went on to direct television, including episodes of Coronation Street and London Playhouse. His first theatrical was City of the Dead in 1960, which is known as Horror Hotel here in the States. So what's interesting is that I've got, he was born in Argentina and then moved to England and found work as an editor. But what happened in his like childhood and why did he relocate to England? None of this I can find online. So this whole part of his life to me, and maybe other people, fans of his may know more, and I'd be happy to um, hear from them. If uh, they'd like to tell me more about his life, I'll have our email at the end if anybody would like to talk about him some more. So anyway, his American TV movie debut would end up being Dial M for Murder, which originally aired on the 15th of November, 1967 on ABC. Um, I have some questions about this, and I'll wait till I get to the end of this paragraph to bring that up. Uh, so this was a transatlantic production, and ABC shared producing credits with Red Diffusion Television, which is a London-based outfit. Um, he did a couple of telefilms for Red Diffusion, including A Hatful of Rain in 1968 and the infamous remake of Laura, which aired in 1968 as well. Um, and so I'm not sure if these were all live broadcasts, but I know Laura was. So I'm thinking Dial in for Murder and A Hatful of Rain are both live as well, but um, I don't know for sure. So Laura was an infamous sort of production because they cast um, Jackie Kennedy's younger sister in it. Her name, and I'm probably going to mispronounce her last name, is Lee Radziwill. Um, and she was apparently no actress. Uh, so when this aired, the critics just ripped her apart. They weren't so hip on the production in general, but the response was really pretty, pretty harrowing. Um, but because of that, it's formed a bit of a cult legacy. And a lot of people for years thought the film or the tape of the, this production was lost. But I guess it, it sometimes screens at fest and conventions. So if you have a chance mm -hmm. to catch it, I say see it because I've read about it. Um, I think... What was the name of that magazine? Oh shoot, that came out. It was so good, and I meant to I meant to talk about. It. They did a full, really wonderful piece on Laura. Hmm. Why can't I remember the name of the magazine? So, anyways, oh, and I I can see it in my head. I just found out I didn't understand that Lee Radzewell's cousins and aunt or whatever were the people that Great Gardens was based on. So what happened was she turned filmmakers onto them apparently, and that whole documentary came about oh, wow. because I think her impetus like she got started which is really interesting mm -hmm. um so anyway while in england um, moxie would also produce a number of television shows including the avengers and the saint and according to uh, the bfi obituary that i found on him um he came to the attention of america because of his work in these types of shows which were colorful and good and done quickly and efficiently um americans uh i should say the american networks were impressed by the productions of laura and half lorraine so even though laura got really bad reviews um i think the networks in general saw what moxie could do with these productions. So he came to the States and he did four episodes of the series of The Name of the Game. And he would end up doing a lot of episodic work, but he found a real niche for himself in the world of made for television movies. Um, and you know, when he got started, obviously if his first production was like in what year did I say, 1967, he's right at the infancy of the TV movie, which is great. And um, he would make a name for himself really early on. And we're gonna get to that here in a minute. So I pulled a couple of uh, paragraphs on the BFI obituary because they basically said what I wanted to, but much better. So it's probably just better if I read their words. Um, so quote, indeed, Moxie did much to give the new format legitimacy by refining techniques that would be employed across the networks. Keeping the imagery simple but polished, he, he paced plot lines so that their dramatic high points left viewers on tender hooks over the commercial breaks. He also insisted on adding visual flourishes that had been impossible during live studio transmissions and, in the process, demonstrated that small screen pictures could be atmospheric, artistic, and occasionally spectacular. 
Moxie made his mark with a supernatural duo starring Barbara Stanwyck, The House That Would Not Die, and A Taste of Evil. And looking back, I kind of think maybe I could have paired those two for tonight as well, but I think we're good with what we have. And he would revisit the old Dark House formula with The Strange and Deadly Occurrence from 1974, which served as a dry run for writer Sandor Stern's The Amityville Horror. He recruited Gloria Graham for the mad scientist outing Escape from 1971 and teamed effectively with a genre writer Joe Stefano for Home for the Holidays from 1972 and Hammer stalwart Jimmy Sangster on No Place to Hide from 1981, which confirmed that there was more to horror than slashers. With the networks keen to cash in on genres playing well at American, America's multiplexes, Moxie became something of a jack-of-all-trades as he put a small-screen spin on science fiction, spy, spy thrillers, all-star disaster movies, women's prison sagas, and social conscious dramas. What set Moxie apart, however, was his ability to set a scene and draw out a protagonist's personality. This made him a natural choice for feature-length pilots, as he could capture the imagination of viewers and networks commissioners and network commissioners alike. Starring Darren McGavin as reporter Carl Kolchek on the tale of a Las Vegas vampire. Sorry, there's thunder and stuff, which is perfect for Halloween. The Night Stalker from 1972 became the most watched teleplay of the decade and a major influence on the X-Files. Moreover, it led to Moxie being entrusted by producer Aaron Spelling with the pilot for Charlie's Angels, which transformed the way in which women were depicted in action scenarios, end quote. So that was just a lovely thing that BFI really encapsulated that made Moxie so wonderful. What's interesting, though, is that he was never nominated for an Emmy for his network television work, but he did win a regional Emmy in Washington for work he did on a local public television channel where he was, I think, Moxie had retired. Um, so from KTBC's website in an undated article, I found this, quote, the Northwest region of the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences has awarded KBTC Public Television an Emmy for its special promotional campaign about the station's Friday night mystery programs. KBTC, the public television station licensed to Bates Technical College in Tacoma, was honored in the program promotion campaign category for a series of short vignettes that spoofed the Sherlock Holmes series aired by the station on Friday nights. Honored with the award was station volunteer John Llewellyn Moxie, who produced and directed the vignettes, and Michael Peters, videographer and editor. This is the ninth Emmy Award given to KBTC for its local production work since 2007. End quote. I think that's wonderful that he finally got an Emmy. And I wish I lived in Tacoma because I would have hung out at that station every night. So um, Moxie um, died. I think he was 94. He had cancer and um, he died this year on April 29th. Um, and that was just a really, really heart wrenching thing for me because even though I knew he was older and I think we we're all pretty sure it was coming, um, he was really to me the symbol of what made TV movies so wonderful. He did so many different kinds of TV movies. And in matter of fact, he would direct two to four features a year. Um, and in 1979 alone, here's four movies he made to meet The Solitary Man, Ebony, Ivory and Jade, The Power Within and Sanctuary of Fear. And this was not unusual. If you look at his filmography, there are several years where he's got at least three or four movies rolling all at the same time. And it's a testament to his talent that he could make so many movies and have so many that have stood out to us over the years. So I thought what we would do is talk about some of our favorite John Llewellyn Moxie TV movies. I do want to mention, I didn't put this on my list, but the Charlie's Angels pilot is phenomenal. It's yes. phenomenal. It's so I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, there's this really great, so Bo Hopkins is in it. He would go on to do another two-part Charlie's Angels with Burt Convey, but he's in the pilot. And... There's this really great scene with Jacqueline Smith and him where she's she's undercover and I think sorry about the lightning guys. Um, <laughs> it's okay. 
it's great. It's yeah. great. It's but taste now, of evil, is what it is. She dramatic. gets kind. Yes, it is. She gets kind of uncovered as being like not the person, like an imposter. And she sits down at this chair across from Bo Hopkins, and there's like a five minute scene of them just going back and forth, trying to outdo each other, you know, and like her to keep up appearances and him trying to like get her to slip up, and it's brilliant. The writing's really solid, and the direction is wonderful. And so for all the stuff that Charlie's Angels is remembered for, some of it good, some of it not so good, that pilot movie really captured what I think Aaron Spelling wanted to do by um, placing women at the forefront of, like, these sort of action-centric shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's wonderful, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. But um, I thought we could kind of go around and maybe just talk about uh, one or two movies at a time. Um, and I don't know what's on everybody's list or how many movies you have listed out, but um, I'll talk about one we've already covered. And so I'll be brief about it because we can, um, people can listen to it if they want to later, but no place to hide, which came out in 1981 is probably my all time favorite John Lennon Moxie movie and very close to being my all time favorite TV movie. I've seen it a gazillion times. Um, I never get tired of it. It's got the Moxie moment, which is something we'll talk about later. Um, and it's got Kathleen Beller in a wonderful ingenue type role. It's creepy. It's scary. It's suspenseful. It's got twists galore. It's fast paced. It's beautiful to look at. Um, and it's just a really solid thriller. Uh, one of my all time favorites. Um, and I know Dan, you were, you liked that one too, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It, in fact, uh, when, when you mentioned the title there, I had to remember which one that was, but yes, I did. I did like that one. It's a very, very good one. Very good one. Almost everything I've seen Moxie do, even down to episodes of Masquerade, um, right. are, are, is, is good stuff. I'm not sure if you got a chance to watch that one, Bill. Did you? That's my favorite one. Ooh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I watched, uh, I watched 12 of uh, Moxie's films, uh, in preparation for this episode, oh and that, that was my favorite one. Uh, and actually, I listened to your episode on it too, or at least I listened to half of it because I didn't get a chance to watch the uh, the other the co-feature of that episode, but mm-hmm. um, the one on, on on Kathleen Beller. But uh, yeah, I, I actually saw the same um, connections or, or uh, resonances with Prom Night that you mentioned in that episode. Oh, also, yeah. how the first half does take on kind of the um, like the slasher movie tropes a little bit before kind of becoming a little bit more like um, you know, taste of evil uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. But, you yeah, know, I, I, I thought it was great. Like almost everything, I all 12 of the films that I watched for this were entertaining in different ways. It was pretty eye-opening, just like how consistently entertaining everything was. Um, yeah, I, he was I, really good at that. Yeah, well, I had seen um, City of the Dead, Horror Hotel, um, yes. you know, way before, and that's a theatrical film. And um, I'd forgotten like how rough that was for 1960. That's the same year as like, things like Psycho and Black Sunday. It's just as strong as those in terms of the uh, the cruelty and the violence of it. But then you jump ahead to his TV movie work, and it's like, you know, whether it's Smash Up on Interstate 5 or mm-hmm. – um, I mean, I'd seen The Night Stalker, and I'd seen Home for the Holidays, but I'd never seen um, Escape. I'd never seen uh, Where Have All the People Gone. I Desire, the uh, oh, the vampire sorry. movie yeah. with uh, David Naughton. Like, I mean, it just so, – oh, I mean, yes. and I was only scratching the surface with just the, the does and I watched um, just because he has so many – films it was just overwhelming because it's like everyone i'd see like oh i want to see even more of these things and it's funny how i i don't know how i mean i think i've heard you talk about him you know in in you know the show and in your writing but i don't know how, like is he is he like a, as much of a household name with other tv movie uh aficionados is he is he like considered one of the greats yes yeah. yeah, he's probably considered the greatest um, made-for-TV movie genre director. 
Um, there may be a couple names that might be more famous. Obviously, those who went on to become famous, like Steven Spielberg, of course, and John sure. Batham, and Joseph Sargent in TV movies, and, and those are really famous names. But for the people who basically stayed in TV, there's like David Lowell Rich, Jerry Jameson, John Willem Moxie. Those are names you're going to see time and time again, and there's a couple others that I'm missing right now. Robert Michael but, um, Lewis. Robert Michael Lewis is another one that's correct. Um, and, and so those are names that you'll hear over and over again. But I think that John Wall and Moxie, because probably of the Night Stalker, which is interesting because for a long time, people were ascribing the entire film to Dan Curtis. And you're like, well, yeah, you yeah, know, he did no. produce it and everything, but he didn't yeah. direct it. And I think he might have directed The Night Strangler. He did. Um, he did. He, he, yeah. he did. And you, you can tell The Night Strangler, I, I adore, but it, it's the... Um, I don't think it's as sharp in the direction as, as Night Stalker is. Um, you know, that's interesting that you say that because I actually, and I know this is sacrilege, I prefer the Night Strangler oh. to the Night Stalker. And I know that's that puts me on the outs, and I don't know why no, that no. is. There's, but I like it more, but it's basically the same movie. And when I did Mike White's Kolchak papers, the uh, I can't, his uh, partner Chris you know, hadn't really seen any of these before. And he watched the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler back to back, which they weren't ever meant to be seen like that. Like yeah. they didn't have any idea that people would have access to these movies like that. And he's like, they're kind of the same movie, you know? And he, I think he found it a little tedious, but, but they were seen a year apart. And so in that context, you probably didn't remember everything you saw in the Night Stalker, you know, was being replayed, but there's something about it. Maybe it's Joanne Paflug. Um, oh sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I I love I love uh, Carol Lindley a lot, but I think Jennifer Flug or Flug is um, really really energetic and lovely in The Night Strangler. And there's just something about going underneath the city in That's Seattle. That's incredible. And, yeah. Yeah. There's just something about it that I like, but I actually think the Norlis tapes is better. Then yeah, the, the Night that, Strangler and the Night Stalker. So. That's the, that's the point where we go on very different paths, I think. But um, <laughs> will we meet up again at the end? That's good. Yeah, we love. I mean, I love them all. I'm just saying, yes. If I were to order them, I would uh, put the Norlis tapes first. Do we include Curse of the Black Widow? Now we're going off topic. I uh, sorry about that. That's another. That's for another. That's for our Dan Curtis episode. Oh yeah, yeah. That's for our Dan. We need to do a Dan Curtis episode. Um, yes. But um, anyway, yeah. So I'm really glad that you love that one too. You were pretty simpatico though, Bill. I think in our love of genre films, at least. I mean, you're much more of a cinephile than I am because you watch like everything. I think we might have different tastes when it comes to theatricals and stuff, maybe, but um, outside of the genre. But, like, I know you love Mortuary and Prom Night. You know you're alone. And, and like, we're, we're pretty much on the same page for all that, that stuff. So I guess yeah. I'm not surprised that you really like No Place to Hide. Yeah, well, it's it's the one that, I mean, it's interesting, like, to watch, you know, because I, I, if I looked at them in chronological order from things like House That Wouldn't Die up through I Desire, you can see him kind of retaining certain uh, tropes that he likes, but also kind of, completely like staying with the times as far as like where genre yeah. films were so it's like it kind of has that that hammer old gothic dark house feel early on and then it's like you know kind of evolving into like the 70s almost like carpenter or um like you could even compare uh, like something like night strangler to things like you know uh, count yorga vampire like that kind of feel and then by the time you get to smash up on interstate five it's like he's very much like part of that disaster movie trend and then like i Des i desire is like you know it, it, it's like you know it's made for tv but it, it has that same kind of like like calif like that la kind of uh like sleaziness is something like vice squad or something yeah, like an 80s neon take on the night strangler kind of thing and you know when david naughton coming right off of american werewolf so it's like yeah it, it still feels like you know this is what people will be watching in 1980 
to, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like he, like it feels like very in step with where the trends of the genre go in, in the way that's yeah. kind of interesting. But it's like, I think we've talked about this in other places, but like you know, it, it kind of retains that, that core of the domestic like mm. character, character, uh, like, like something like, uh, I desire the, the vampire movie. It's like, it's, it's more about like how that, re- that obsession with the vampire is, is like, you know, ruining his relationship and like yes. hurting his like, like academic, uh, enthusiasm. Like it's, it's, it's not, um, I mean, it is about him, like, you know, finding Brad Dorif and like trying to track down this, like this vampire that's like, you know, uh, pretending to be a hooker and like, uh, attacking men, but it's mostly just about like how that obsession is ruining his life, which is like, mm. you know, bringing it like into a very personal, uh, melodrama kind of place. Um, and like all of these kind of have that kind of component, like, you know, like that, either like family dynamics or, relationships you know it still kind of grounds them in in um you know interpersonal stories as much as like any of the genre trappings that kind of surround them yeah you know i'm i'm glad that you brought up smash up on interstate five because i was going to talk about that because well first of all that's an incredibly ambitious film because it has a really spectacular car crash that you don't necessarily always see on tv it's it's pretty big and it's very upsetting um but in between what's so great about that movie is that it starts with the car crash and then it goes back like 48 hours and it shows you how all the people ended up on that strip of the freeway that ended up in the car crash and people who you think are going to make it don't. And I mean, it's harrowing. And, um, but, but it starts with this really dynamic, uh, spectacular car crash and then it settles into these people's personal lives. Right. And so we start to see all these different types of people like, um, Ozzy, not Ozzy, um, Harriet Nelson and, um, oh my God, what's his name? Buddy Epson are an older couple and she's dying. Right. And there's this really beautiful scene where he thinks she's going to commit suicide by going out to the sea that I really love. And, um, and then we've got Vera Miles who is in one of the movies we're talking about tonight. And she's this divorced woman who ends up with, um, David Groh, who's this truck driver that she meets, um, somewhere along the way after being harassed by some bikers and the bikers end up on the strip too. And, um, can, and it goes into her I, whole story. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Can I just inter- interject one thing? Uh, Vera Miles also gets hit on by, uh, Herb Edelman yes. as Danny who play, who, you know, plays a similar oh, yes. character in strange yeah. and deadly occurrence. That's right. I put that in my notes. Um, yeah. And so like, and that's something else we're going to see. I think we're going to see some of these names pop up over and over again. Um, I think he liked to work with certain people, but like, but like that movie's really brilliant because it's, it's an ensemble. It's huge. It's a huge, there's just this ridiculous large cast and they all get their full stories, beginning, middles and ends, except for maybe the bikers. Right. And Scott Jacoby's in it. Um, he has this whole story and, and be, and so it starts with the crash, but then you get to know the people. In a way, it's almost like predating, and I'm kind of reaching here, but it's almost like predating Twin Peaks, where we start with Laura Palmer's death, but then we get to know her as the series progresses as a person, and then obviously mm. in the movie. But like, yeah. um, so it's interesting where we see where everybody ends up, but then but then we see what they were doing before they ended up there. And so it's just really brilliant. Um, and so, yeah, you you mentioned a lot of really good ones. I Desire is also a really fun one that I love. Um, Dan, have you seen either one of those? You know what? Um, I saw I Desire about four or five years. When did we start this podcast? I saw it back then. Um, for some reason, I watched it. Um, oh, because it was a moxie. I don't remember much about it, but I remember enjoying it. Yeah. And, um, uh, Smash Up on Interstate 5 is one of those that I almost watch 
every week of my life. <laughs> but I keep thinking that you're going to say next time we're doing Smash Up on Interstate 5 and I want to be surprised because I've read about it and it sounds incredible. Like I've seen that one where they all wind uh, – it's not a moxie, but that one uh, uh, TV movie from the late 70s where they all wind up on a bridge that's collapsing. I've oh, seen yeah. that one. Is that Hanging and, by a Thread? Is that the one? Oh, I love Hanging, hang, hanging by a Thread is with Burt Convy. Uh, where they're in like one of those um, ski lift. Uh, no, it's okay. not a ski. It's it's that big like um, I, I don't know what the hell it is kind of um, thing I that know, goes up and down. I know a mountain. what you're talking about. We, yes. we saw that in um, Dressed to Kill, or not? She's Dressed to Kill, and um, yes, they, exactly, whatever that's called. Um, yeah, Sky and there's Wayne a Columbo episode that does that. Yeah. Uh, there's a Roddy McDowell Scott uh, Columbo episode that does yeah, that. Yeah, no, you're thinking that, of yeah. um, The Night the Bridge Fell Down with Desi Arnaz. Yeah, yes. Is that the one? Okay. okay, yes, yes, that's the one. Um, but no, I haven't seen it because um, every, yeah, every time I, I look at it, I go, I need to watch that. And I'm like, oh, I want to keep it fresh for when we watch it. Yeah. So no, I, I desire I, wa I watched a long time ago and I remember enjoying Smash Up I have not watched yet so why don't you tell us one of your favorites and i know one of them what one of them is but uh okay well so i'm gonna i'm gonna start briefly with one uh that you don't think i'm gonna start with and that's san francisco international oh i haven't seen that one and i actually first saw that one because mystery science theater 3000 covered it ah. but then i watched it without them and it's basically it's 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 the moxie doing uh airport um, in at San Francisco International, and I I really like it. I think it's really good. Uh, I th I think he does a really nice job of um, sort of balancing uh, juggling be because the original uh, airport was not quite like a slasher film as we a uh, slasher film. Where, where where was I going there? A disaster film as we know it. I was thinking of Halloween for a second because I would say like Halloween isn't quite a slasher film as we know it. And Airport isn't quite a disaster film as we know it. Airport 75 is. Yeah, but good. Yeah, Airport, all, of the, all four of those airports are great. But the first, the first uh, airport, and I, I keep wanting to say airplane, forgive me if I, I say that, but the first airport is more of, a, is more of like a soap opera. Like a, I, I want to say like a Peyton Place kind of thing. It's a bunch of different things going on, and not all of it is disaster related. And San Francisco International really does that nicely. Okay. He, he like in a TV movie world with Pernell Roberts with a great Ooh. hairpiece. Um, he comes in and he does his business, and I think. I forget who else. There are a lot of great people in that, and maybe a little later I can yell out who's in it, but. It's a great cast, and it got um, – uh, it was in 1970, and like a year later, they did the four-in-one umbrella program with a psychiatrist, Night Gallery, mm, yeah. San Francisco International, and I'm blank – McLeod. Uh, and San Francisco International was in that, but Lloyd Bridges played the Purnell Roberts part in ah, that. But yeah, he's great too, yeah. So so that that is one I – I love those movies, and that is one that you may not have seen, and you should watch because he does a really good job of doing it. However, I will bring up my favorite of well, it's probably not my favorite of his films, but it's the one I watch. It's the one I watch when I'm feeling down, and that is Escape. I adore Escape to pieces. I um, I just think it's so crazy. And and it goes all over the place and does all these things. Christopher George is so good and and it's just it's just so nutty. And William Wyndham 
uh, who that's we right. will talk oh, about right. is in it. And, um, uh, and there, it's, there's so many good actors in it and it's such a weird film. And oh my God, Hunts Hall is in it from the Bowery Boys. Oh He's my God. the bartender. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, it's Hunts Hall. You know, it's like, it's, it's so good. And obviously the magician, the Bill Bixby show, which was a few years mm. later, uh, uh, was kind of based off of it. Yeah. But it's it's this – the magician never had a plot line where some crazy guy is trying to create a microbe or something that's going to destroy the entire planet or something. And it doesn't end at an amusement park with Christopher George chasing the – oh, why am I blanking on his name? The principal from Animal House. Um, John Vernon. Yes, John Ver. Thank you, thank you, Bill. Um, chasing him around a roller coaster. I mean, the the movie is nuts, and it's it, it. The thing about it is that it shows off like the the there's some horror in it. There's some suspense. There's some just good like discuss Avery Schreiber and Gloria Graham talking back and forth. Um, and there's some great like action scenes, including lots of stuff in like an elevator shaft. Uh, I'm a big fan of heights. Um, action so so I love that and then the ending is this chase around a roller coaster and I, I think um, if you can get a good looking copy it's about you know it's a 90 minute one so it's like 72 73 minutes and it's it's a joy um, I, I, re- I really love it. I really love it I like that I like that right before the uh, the carnival chase John Vernon shouts you're all gonna die and then a William Castle style skeleton is kind of dropped into the frame and just kind of yes. knocks awkwardly against one of the heroes. And then yes. it like leads to the chase. It's it just like a, such an odd moment in a film that is like overflowing with odd moments. <laughs> it's, it's he, that, that's the one that, that has, um, a, uh, uh, like 10 years ago, I started writing a novel that I haven't finished called diary of a nude man. And it has a sequence in it that is in escape where he is, brought into a room that is actually a room constructed within another space. I'm, I'm trying to think of another, uh, there's a BJ and the bear where that happens, but there's like, they, they construct a room and it's, so you think you're in a space, but then when you tear down the walls, you're actually in a larger space where something else is going on. And you get a great scene in that where Christopher George is like the Christopher George style of fighting is to leap in the air on top of people. <laughs> which is incredible. And uh, I wish he'd done that like Gates of Hell or Mortuary or something like that. That would have been kick-ass. But, um, yeah, it's a, it, that's, that's a, it's such a weird film, and I, I, I adore it. The, the opening credit sequence is, is oh, enough so to Oh, so good, yeah. It's really, yeah. really of its time and very, like, because you know what I mentioned earlier about um, Moxie caught the attention of the networks because uh, in England they were making all these what they called the swinging 60s type programmings that were really colorful and stuff and Escape has a lot of that kind of grooviness to it you know and like the suave heroic type that uh, uh, Christopher George plays and I don't remember the story that well but I think that's not because I haven't seen the film in a while I think it's because the story is really convoluted and that's just how it is. <laughs> the story's all secondary is. to just the personality yes. on screen and just some action sequences. But it is a lot of fun. Yeah. And I do know Bill had watched it, and I was like, "Oh man, Dan's going to tell you a lot about this movie." Oh, Bill, Bill, Bill <laughs> please. What did what did you what did you think about it, Bill? I know I enjoyed it. I thought like it like like Amanda's saying, but like it being convoluted. I I think even like three days later, it felt like a half remembered dream that I had rather than yes. like something that I had seen. 
Like I, because I I read the description of it and I I was expecting it to be almost horrorish. Like I thought that it was going to be yes. like a mad scientist kind of like creating zombies or something. And then it's like this like James Bond on acid escape artist story <laughs> yes, yes. that doesn't really resemble a horror movie so much as like a like like a like almost like a yeah. like a almost like a detective noir thing, but also yes. Um, like with a lot of like set pieces that feel like magic acts, you know, like, yes, it's, it's, and you know, the horror climax is like a guy looking through a microscope avidly while like cells seem to be forming like under <laughs> like a Petri dish. So it's, it, it, it really kind of, uh, evades most of my expectations, like from minute to minute. Um, but it was never boring. And I, I it was by far the strangest thing that I saw in preparation for this conversation. <laughs> I, I I think that's probably uh, uh, where I stand on it. I um I I love the that he lives in the top floor of the Magic Castle. Right. I love that he sends Avery Schreiber on. Who's the guy? Uh, the um the um Glory Graham's um uh, husband is the um was the senator who died in Amazons. What, what was that? Oh, William, William Scheller. Yes, yes, he he is he is that he, he is there and. And William Wyndham is in it. Wait, and it's wait, just... wait. William Shallert was also in um, Through Naked Eyes, which is a John Lennon Moxie movie we covered with David Soul and oh, yes. uh, Pam Dauber. He Pam was Dauber. David Soul's dad. And yes. there we go. So he does use a lot of these same actors. We're starting to see yeah. the names yeah. appear again here. Yeah. And I'm going to stop talking about Escape because I realize I could talk for another half hour. Continue, everyone. Bill, is there one you want to talk about? Um, I think I think I've touched on most of the ones that I had something to say about. I mean, just that uh, No Place to Hide was one that I wasn't even sure that I was going to get a chance to watch because I thought, well, you know, I should probably stick with the 70s stuff, you know, because that's what we're concerting on. But it was like the nicest surprise of all of them because, it, you know, it had that kind of connection to the slasher movies of the early 80s, which I love. But it also still, you know, had such resonance with, um, you know, uh, uh, Taste of uh, Evil um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, uh, and then things like Night Stalker, I'm, I, you know, I'm sure that all of your listeners know that or Home for the Holidays. Um, yeah. I think the first time I ever heard you on a podcast was about Home for the Holidays was uh, the first episode of the uh, Axe to Grind podcast. Mm, that's right. Oh, yeah, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That was a great one. Yeah. Yeah. That's Nate's favorite movie. And I know if he was here, he would want to uh, cheer that yeah. one on. We know we have covered it in a podcast if people want to go back and listen to yeah. it. But, um, I, but I would say that rewatching it like kind of with John Llewellyn Moxie in mind. You know, it felt less like a proto slasher to me and more like, you know, like part of the, you know, uh, tradition that he was working in as far as like these, you know, character driven gothic old yeah. dark house kind of stories. I mean, mm, the fact that yeah. it had like that, that slasher element almost seemed like secondary to like being about family and about, um, yes. I mean, I, I've heard, you know, that, uh, you know, you talk about that film before on Hysteric and do you were you on the Hysteric and Teenagers? No, that too, or no just... but they might have mentioned me just because it was a TV movie, but they did that one before I was ever uh, host, oh, that's... a guest. Yeah, maybe so. But yeah, no, um, yeah, I think, you know, that I guess, yeah, I have more to say about the two that are like the main things we're talking about. But even something like um, Where Have All the People Gone? Like, it's interesting oh. to watch some of his dystopian science fiction films because I'd seen The Last Child a few yeah. months ago and then watching Where Have All the People Gone, which... I, I wasn't even sure if I was confusing it with The People, which is like this oh, yeah. Coppola-related TV movie that I had seen a long time ago. But um, but even that was like, you know, had like this element of like animal attack, you know, with all the dogs always being vicious, like that mm. they encounter. But again, it's like for, you know, a uh, dystopian science fiction, it's still just a kind of about family dynamics and family tensions. And yeah, I, I just like 
I think um, I think Smash Up on Interstate Five. I mean, you you touched on that one. That one was like so gripping from story to story, and and uh, I, I it reminded me of something like Final Destination Two, the way it like opens with like that horrific, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, traffic accident. But then yes. it becomes, you know, then all this behavior that seems kind of like. Yeah, you know, people like saying "I love you" to like like everyone is like hooking up on the highway right before, you know, right before the crash. It's like, what the hell is going on? Like this the swinging seventies, I guess. But like then it's like, oh, everything becomes a lot more clear. Like why this person's paranoid about cops and why this person, you know, is like so quick to you know hook up with this trucker that's just shouting to them in traffic. Um, <laughs> well, it's David Grow, first of all. Uh, let's get that clear. Joe was from Rhoda was like the hottest thing that the seventies ever saw. So, but it was also so melancholy because you had. Yeah. like these suicide attempts and like sympathetic characters being shot to death like on you know the verge of like them having their first child and like like it was like a pretty heartbreaking That's you right, know story i'm dying to watch this yeah it's just it's yeah. so brilliantly put together and it's interesting i used to have a personal trainer in la because i lived in la and you have to have a personal trainer and he was <laughs> a little older than me and he loved tv movies and so we talked a lot about them and the first tv movie he brought up to me was like you know the one i never forgot Smash Up on Interstate 5, he said, that movie just haunted me. I hadn't really seen it at that point, or maybe I'd seen it once and just I didn't remember it well or whatever. But then I sat down with it, and I was like, God, this is so good. This is so good. Like, just just the, the work that went into making the film and probably the very short production schedule that they had, you know, just imagining getting all of that into a movie in time and making it that good is really really very substantial, you know, and, and worth yeah. noting. Well, I also just thought about like how, yeah, I mean, these, these films are like, you know, tight 72 minute, 73 minute kind of productions in a lot of cases, but they, they still have atmosphere to them. Like they're yeah. not like just expository dialogue driven, you know, scene to scene, to scene, to scene, to scene and cut kind of thing. Like, I mean, they, they have, they, they give you room to breathe, but they don't like, they don't drag, you know, if that yeah, makes any sure. sense. Yeah. Um, even like the early gothic uh, things like House That Would Not Die or um, we talk about Taste of Evil. Like, I mean, they they give you enough of a, of a feel for the locations, which seem like very crucial to his films. Like mm-hmm. a lot of uh, focus is on domestic space, like houses, houses as a source of pride or a house of source of riches or, you know, um, people returning to a house or like what trauma, you know, ensued. But yeah. like. Uh, you know, they, yeah. they, they, make, they make good use out of the fact that they had like that those limited resources by making the locations they do have seem like to have a real prominent place in like the story itself. Yeah. When I think of the house that would not die in a taste of evil and maybe to a degree, the strange and deadly occurrence, I'm thinking of a house of secrets, you know, these houses that hold these dark memories and, um, and people come, I guess it's different in a strange and deadly occurrence. We could talk about that, but it is a house where something has happened, you know, and the people there aren't fully aware of it, but like um, the house that would not die. I'm really glad you brought that one up because that's, really far up on my list of favorites um that movie is well first of all it's based on my favorite horror novel by barbara michaels the house that would not die and it's a lot different in a lot of ways and it's very similar in a lot of others but what i like so much about the house that would not die is that it's got this kind of moving ending and it surprised me when i saw it because I, I was really into it. It was creepy. Um, it had a lot of atmosphere. It was, it was surprisingly rapey. It had some really weird suspenseful stuff with the main guy and Barbara Stanwyck. But, like, just that end point, the very last, like, moments in the film, 
uh, after you find out what had happened in the house and what was going on with the what was haunt the haunting and everything, I, it actually brought me to tears. And that's the first time I can remember a TV movie that's just a plain ghost story like that evoking that kind of emotion in me. And so it really stuck with me over the years, and, and in a way it has haunted me too. Um, that's a really, really good one. And I kind of hadn't thought about like the old Dark House trajectory that he was on, but you're right, because well, TV movies are meant to be very much of their time because the production schedules are so fast, they can do whatever is in the moment. So Moxie had to really either adapt or have great foresight in what was coming. But um, because he really did sort of embody all different kinds of things in his films, like we were talking about No Place to Hide having those elements of prom night. And, you know, that came out in 81, and that's right when the slasher was, like, hitting its stride. And so he managed to pull all of these slasher elements that you wouldn't normally see in a TV movie and sprinkle them in there and still make the movie a straight thriller. But it has these, and they marketed it a little bit like a slasher, you know, it has a very final girl-like ad campaign. And it was really interesting that he was so aware of what was happening in the filmmakers and just the producers and the writers, too, were so aware of what was happening in, in the cinematic landscape that was so hot and now and trendy that they could just spin these movies out very fast and make them, you know, pretty, not direct companion pieces, but you could probably watch Prom Night and No Place to Hide back to back. And you, and you might not get this idea that it is a TV movie. Do you know what I mean? They both have a similar feel to them, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could even watch, you know, American World of London and I Desire back to back as well. Yeah. But they have a oh, connection. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, oh, obviously these had to do that. They had to work within the, you know, t- television restrictions. And so, like, you're trying to do a slasher movie at a time when, you know, those are starting to push the envelope in terms of explicitness, you know, and, you know, and, you know, that might even be like, you know, one of the big selling points for a certain viewer, you know, a slasher movie is the, you know, the gore effects and, you know, the outrageousness of them. But to make them like a, a, a character driven equivalent to that, you know, is, mm. I think would be tricky, especially at that time when, you know, films like Prom Night were not taken that seriously. Right. One one of the joys, though, of if you uh, some of the early slashers after the MPAA began to crack down, was that a lot of them don't actually have much gore in them at all. So so if you're you you might be able to slide into that a little easier, sort of the the realm of of sure yeah. Well, the the stalking aspect of a lot of slasher movies, like he knows you're alone or prom night or Halloween. I mean, that's what you know, no place to hide kind of trades it. And that's part, yes. partly what I prefer in the slasher movies, even the R-rated ones anyway. So it doesn't really mm-hmm. even feel like it's a, uh, a drawback, but it, mm-hmm. it takes such a left turn um, the way a lot mm-hmm. of these films seem to, where the, the focus, once it, once it changes protagonists midstream, it becomes a different kind mm-hmm. of film. Yeah, yeah, no place to hide is really interesting that way. I also kind of want to talk about... Um, Talking about speaking to kind of a cultural moment, just real briefly, because I don't think either one of you saw it. Um, but John Lamont Moxie, and I didn't even realize he directed this till I was looking at the list of his films. He made a movie called The Cradle Will Fall in 1983 with um, Lauren Hutton and Ben Murphy and James Tarantino. And I'll just briefly cover it because this is one we should probably cover on the show. And maybe we'll cover it with fantasies because they're both kind of doing the same thing and with this meta narrative with soap operas. So basically, it's it's about this woman. Uh, played by Lauren Hutton, who is this, uh, I think she's a district attorney, and she's having these uh, medical problems, and she ends up in the hospital, and they've sedated her, but she has these sort of night terrors, so she sleepwalks and stuff. And she happens to be in this um, hospital room after having one of these spells, and she she's not really looking out the window, but she's standing positioned, looking like it looks like she's looking out the window, in this night terror, 
And she actually sees James Ferentino dumping a dead body into a um, trunk of a car. He's a physician who has been trying some kind of special operation that's been backfiring. And when one of the patients um, wants to sue him for malpractice, he kills her. And he puts her in the trunk of the car. And he looks up and he sees Lauren Hutton looking down at him. And he thinks, oh, my gosh, she's just seen me disposing of this body. I have to find her. But what's so interesting about the movie, and I'm going to get the soap opera wrong because I didn't prepare for it. So it takes place in, I think, Springfield which was the name of a, uh, of a fictional town in, I think, Guiding Light. And um, what they did was they took actors from Guiding Light and they put them as their characters in small parts in The Cradle Will Fall. And they marketed it as this movie that had these that takes place in the same town, totally separate story, but what? it's got all these characters filtering in and out, including um, William Macy, is that his name? Um, from Boogie Nights, because he actually started on, oh, yeah. on, I think it was Guiding mm-hmm. Light was the soap. And then to cross promote it even further, Ben Murphy played a doctor on uh, episodes of Guiding Light. And so, and it was to get people to cross pollinate them to uh, each from the show to the soap and vice versa. And actually, James Ferentino asked to direct an episode of the soap, and um, they told him no. <laughs> so he ended up not having any involvement. I think that's what happened. Um, but we'll cover that with fantasies because it's got this meta narrative. But I rewatched wow. that recently, and I'm not even sure why. I think I had insomnia or something, and I just wanted something on. And I love that movie so much. I love it. And I put it on, and um, and I just ingested like how awesome it was and how neat it was that it's kind of winking at the soap audience and giving them something really neat, you know, these kind of neat little um, Easter eggs that you don't normally see in these TV movies. And um, I thought it was just really well done. I'm guessing neither one of you have seen it. Is that right? No, but I have not. Yes, I would. My, My mom's favorite soap opera was Guiding Light. And during summers, I used to watch that with her. Well, then you'll probably recognize some of the actors if you watched it in the 80s. Because, probably, yeah. yeah it's just, they're just in real small parts. They work at the um, office that Lauren Hutton is the DA at, mostly. And um, and I never watched that soap, so I don't. I only recognize them because they're famous soap actors. Like James, um, is it James Vandervoorn? Or Jerry, Jerry Vandervoorn, I think that's his name. He, went, he would go on to One Life to Live later, and that's where I recognize him from. But anyway, I wrote about the... Um, the movie for my blog years ago. And, and that's when I realized that they were doing all this stuff with soaps. And I thought it was so amazing. And I thought it was so great. Um, the way they interspersed them into this, um, cinematic universe of the TV movie. And at the same time, it was still the soap universe. Right. So it's really, really brilliant. Um, and so, I mean, there's other movies I have on my list, but maybe we should get it onto our features unless you guys have any others you want to bring up. I, I, I certainly could, but, uh, I think we should get to the features. Yeah. I, I didn't expect this to go so crazy, but, um, I didn't expect there to be so many, shows for us to talk about but of course there would be because he made i don't even know how many tv movies he made it's a ridiculous amount so but let's just get started with the two we're going to talk about so i wrote this blog post oh god in 2011 um i reread it i didn't embarrass myself when i wrote it so i'm not too embarrassed to read it but it i called it a moxie twofer a taste of evil and the strange and deadly occurrence um and let me just read you what i wrote so A Taste of Evil originally aired on ABC on October 12, 1971, and The Strange and Deadly Occurrence aired on NBC on September 12, 1974. And I wrote, Jimmy Stankster let the cat out of the bag when he admitted on a DVD commentary track for The Horror of Frankenstein that he had lifted the story for his Taste of Fear screenplay, a.k.a. Scream of Fear from 1971, and used it to write a TV movie, A Taste of Evil. Aaron Spelling recognized the story, and for giggles, I'll assume, director John Willem Moxie did as well. Since Evil seems to be a remake, it's slightly ironic that Moxie redid it again, sorta, in 1974 with The Strange Deadly Occurrence, written by TV vet Sandor Stern. 
Without knowing the backstory to these films or even that Moxie had directed both, well, maybe I did know somewhere inside my little IMDb-friendly brain, but somehow forgotten about it, I watched both Evil and Occurrence back-to-back recently. Most of you will probably know that here at Made for TV Mayhem, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. I mean, isn't that what blogs are for? I've never made it a secret that I simply adore John Llewellyn Moxie. He's a small-screen horror movie magic maker, creating little universes full with suspense and sometimes straight-up terror. And I won't even get into his work on Magnum P.I., Okay, maybe I will. Way of the Stalking Horse is excellent. And it is, if anybody has a chance to see it. I also love that he's made about a gazillion things, so I'm still discovering a lot of his films. I was really struck with the similarities between Evil and Occurrence, and I found that I had a hard time mulling over one film without thinking of the other, so I thought I'd do a Moxie Tube for and review them together. The most obvious resemblance lies within the premise. Let's briefly go over the themes, shall we? Evil definitely falls under the is she or isn't she insane plot, which was so popular in the 70s and almost completely worn out by the end of the decade. Occurrence is more of a is it or isn't it haunted story, and both films have fairly predictable conclusions to these questions. While the guesswork for both is child's play, a little past the halfway point of evil, there is a really great twist, and it almost becomes another film. A little less predictable, the bulk of the energy comes from the turn of events, although if you've seen enough of these, then you'll probably still guess the whole shebang. Evil opens up with a harrowing sequence featuring the attack and rape of a young girl. After being sent away to a sanitarium, Susan, played by Barbara Parkins, returns many years later to face her demons and rejoin her mother, Miriam, played by Barbara Stanwyck, who is now married to an old family friend and heavy boozer named Harold, played by William Wyndham. Despite feeling fairly grounded, Susan starts seeing things which may or may not be there. Miriam lists the help from her doctor friend, Michael Lomas, played by Roddy McDowell, and he worries that Susan isn't as well-adjusted as they thought. Occurrence takes a little more time to get going, focusing a bit more on the family as a happy bunch living out in the middle of nowhere. They are played by Robert Stack, Vera Miles, and Margaret Willock. There is no opening trauma, but once it kicks kicks off, things begin to build quickly. Creepy things start happening to the teenage daughter who is either having bad dreams or dealing with someone coming into her room at night. Yikes. There are other little issues as well, such as a bathtub overflowing when no one ran it, and whatever or whoever is wreaking havoc continues to elevate the reign of terror until the family considers leaving. Both films begin with the mental demise of the daughter. It starts much earlier for the character in Evil, but whatever is preying on the family in occurrence first sets out to destroy the emotional stability of the teenager in the house. Both films have an outsider who is a rational thinker. For Evil, it's Dr. Lomas, while occurrence employs the local sheriff played by the terrifically macho L.Q. Jones. And they are there to offset what we think might be happening. It's one of the most common additions to these kinds of films where the intention is to throw the viewer off their center. It works better in Evil, but I really liked Jones as the forever annoyed law enforcement officer. And strangely enough, both films feature dead bodies in water. I know it's crazy, right? The unfortunate downfall of the TV movie is that it often has a been there, done that kind of feeling to it. The premise of a mental patient trying to ease themselves back into society only to find they may indeed be a total loony is an old foundation for films. Even by the early 70s, it was pretty cliche, but evil relies heavily on atmosphere and it does a good job of making the whole affair lush and creepy, which allows the tired story to um, to find life through the setting and the earnest performances. Stanwyck is especially good, as if anyone had any doubt, but the cast as a whole seems really intent on making the stick feel more fresh and alive. Occurrence is also aware of its well-worn premise, but continues to concentrate on the build-up uh, rather than working up to the twist or twisted ending. In fact, the last couple of scenes almost feel like an afterthought, since the important information is withheld until the climax. Now, I wrote that, but I think I'm wrong about that, and we can talk about that later. Still, the majority of the film is intense, and the actors are game, so I found the outcome easy to forgive. 
Evil is gothic, claustrophobic horror, featuring a grandiose locale, and it feels a little more dated, if only because there aren't enough flowing nightgowns and modern thrillers. Tsk, tsk. Occurrence has a more modern feel, simply by giving the characters a middle-class dynamic. I felt that the I felt that the family and occurrence was easier to relate to, while the ostentatious broken family and evil seemed more unreachable. That's not a ding against evil, but it is one major difference between the two films, aside from the conclusions. But while occurrence is peppered with the, uh, the type of people many of us would know, although it's doubtful anyone else really has the same to die for cheekbones as Miss Vera Miles, evil has uh, some more meat behind the story. Both harken back to the days when horror preferred suggestion over visceral thrills, and they make wonderful companions walking together along the long and winding TV movie road. So I pulled some images here, and I think I talked about them a little bit in the review, but for instance, and we'll talk about each movie separately, but at the opening of A Strange and Deadly, I'm not sorry, at the opening of A Taste of Evil, there's a really creepy scene with the man that we can't see his face standing at a door, and the sun is behind him, so his face and his body is kind of cast in a shadow. And this is right before she gets raped. And last of all, because she was the youngest, there was Susan. She had no brothers or sisters, so she was on her own a lot. But she didn't mind this, because she had her own special house in the woods that her daddy had built for her when she was a very little girl. Sometimes, when the grown-ups were all busy, Susan would go there and do what she liked. Most of all. You moved again, Tim. You keep doing that, I'll never get this picture finished. Now sit still, all of you. Hello. Would you like me to draw your picture? This one isn't finished yet, but I'm sure they won't mind. Who is it? I can't see you in the sun like that. Who is it? Who are you? Then, in A Strange and Deadly Occurrence, um, the teenage daughter gets a visit while she's laying out by the pool from this kind of creepy prison doctor. And when he's standing uh, over her, he's got the sun behind him and it's casting a shadow over him. So you can't fully make out what he looks like. So the camera shots are actually very much the same. And I have these images yeah. on the blog. Um, then, they, of course, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that silhouette framed in a doorway is also an effect you find in the house that would not die. Mm. Um, yes. When, when the man first arrives at the house, it's the same effect that you see in Strange and Deadly and in Taste of Evil. Yeah, so he's employing some of these tried-and-true sort of um, uh, images. And then, in, um, of course, we talked about uh, Roddy McDowell's character and L.Q. Jones' character. They're different. I find Roddy McDowell's character a lot more likable. I think L.Q. Jones' character is likable only because he's so... What are you guys calling me for? You know what I mean? He's like, he doesn't want to be there, and he's kind of... Yeah, well, they're <laughs> both they're both like skeptical authority figures. Yeah. Your dog got kicked to death, Mr. Rhodes. If he did, it wasn't on the horses. Look, I don't know how he got in that stall, but he's attacking something. It wasn't the horses. They didn't start winning until after the dog was killed. I don't understand. Something or somebody killed my dog. I didn't dream it. I wasn't having a nightmare. I don't think my daughter had one last night either. 
Somebody's been on my property and in my house. Don't ask me why, because I don't know. I just want it stopped. Now, Mr. Rhodes, I've uh, lived in the country all my life. And I know that sometimes your imagination... Don't just... give me that city greenhorn stuff. I know what I heard. I know what my wife heard and my daughter heard. Alvarado County is a big territory. I'm short on men and long on problems. I can't park a man on your doorstep with a shotgun. Could you do it if I was born and reared in Alvarado County? We patrol this area regularly. I'll have my deputy keep his eyes open. You don't believe one word I've said, do you? Mr. Rhodes, I'm an elected official. I'm your taxpayer. I don't care whether you were born here or emigrated from Timbuktu, but I know this country. Now, I've seen horses stomp a dog to death before, and when they win, he makes no difference to me. Good night. But I think Roddy McDowell seems more sympathetic to me, so I kind of like him more. And then I was struck by the bodies in the water. So, of course, William Wyndham, we think, might be dead in A Taste of Evil, and, and there's this really creepy scene of him um, submerged in the tub. And then, of course, there's the death of the prison doctor in the pool in um, A Strange and Deadly Occurrence. The, um, there's also a recurrence of uh, threats coming through open bedroom windows, which Ooh, kind of yes. foreshadows things like Twin Peaks later, as far as like the, um, you know, like the, uh, like almost like a sexual violence kind of. Yeah. Um, Very good. Yeah. I, I think you, you, like, in terms of my notes about things that the, the two share in common, I mean, I you know, the imagery of drowned men or the, uh, the, uh, the predatory older men coveting young girls, the, um, the silhouettes framed in doorways that you mentioned, but even the, um, like, the fact that both deal in, like, supernatural horror like images. Um, but they're explained right. away uh, as tricks yes. by kind of uh, conspiring villains that are just looking for money. In, in, in that way, it almost reminds me of like the, like the Jalo versus the Slasher movie where it's like mm. you have the same kind of like uh, body count stalking murder kind of framework. But then the Slasher movies are usually about like, oh, it's a, it's a crazy person, you know, or monster. And then Jalo is like, oh, they, they just wanted the money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's pretty much every yellow I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, these camera images aren't similar, but you know when um, the the culprit first comes into the house in a strange daily occurrence, there's this really great kind of fisheye lens on the daughter and the mom mm -hmm. as they back themselves into a wall. And then I compared it here with that scene where, um, I guess this is going to be a little spoilery, but where there's a, I guess, without going too into it, there's a gunshot hole in the door. Mm -hmm. And then we see the face on the other side. And so they're not similar, but they were similar enough that I compared them to each other in, in my little um, image gallery. The um, the strange and deadly occurrence that that camera that gradually approaches and enters the house reminds me so much of the killer POV in Black Christmas, actually. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, the breathing on the soundtrack and all that. I mean, that that feels very um, like even more slashery than Home for the Holidays gets as far as like his proto slasher. Uh, you know, bona fides. Yeah, same it's, it, same year too. It it it's funny because throughout Strange and Deadly, until the reveal at the end, I kept hoping that because this was the seventies uh, when we had so many documentaries and things about UFOs and Bigfoots oh, yeah. and things like that. I kept spending the whole movie going, please let this be like a crazy alien. Or like a ghost, or like Bigfoot visiting the family, or something like that. Now, I di I didn't mind the ending, but um, when the ending shows up, it's like, oh, okay, all right. So that's it. All it's all I, I it thought, all makes sense ish. 
I thought that too because some of his dialogue in the first scene is like the visitors you're talking about are like you know they don't like he's making some kind of comment about what I think he's talking about the the animals they that go like through the walls yeah. or something like well, that. well there's yeah. gophers or whatever in the house um, but like he's he's making some comment on animals but it's it's so vague that yeah I did wonder if they are talking about something you know uncanny or or something like I, yeah metaphysical. I, I think just the the title did that to me. The, yeah. the strange and deadly. It's a specific strange and deadly occurrence in my mind. But I don't know what that title means any more than I understand what a taste of evil means. I think yeah. we get more than a taste of evil in a taste of evil. <laughs> we, do. we get a whole like buffet. Yeah, of we evil. do a smorgasbord of evil in that movie. That yeah. was the original title, smorgasbord of evil. Smorgasbord. But they thought there's too yeah. many letters for that. So let's go ahead and let's talk about these films um, a little separately, uh, mm-hmm. and we won't go too deeply into the plots. Um, but mm-hmm. a taste it will do chronologically. So a taste of evil, you know, is um, the second movie that Aaron Spelling made that Barbara Stanwyck would appear in. The first one would be The House That Would Not Die. So already we're getting sort of a John Wall and Moxie. Uh, partnership here with Aaron Spelling and Barbara Stanwyck and she's fantastic in this and it's basically it's like I said in my review this is like is she or isn't she crazy kind of thing and I think even by 1971 standards we kind of knew where it was going but it's got a lot of great images the one I guess most striking being the opening scene which is really unlike a lot of things I've ever seen on television um it's really harrowing it's very upsetting it's kind of replayed over and over again throughout the film, and it kind of really keeps you off center. So, like, um, it opens basically at this party, and this, uh, I don't know if she's narrating or if it's, like, a just a little girl doing a narration. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Once upon a time, like, like fairy that, yeah. tales. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which would be used later right in Charlie's Angels, right? Once upon a time, there were three little girls who went to the academy. It's kind of yes. interesting. And so then the little girl goes off. She's got this sort of playhouse. And to be on her own, after we've sort of been introduced to the people that we're going to see in the rest of the film, some of them anyway. And this guy shows up at the door and you can't see anything about You just know it's a man and he's big. And then she gets raped. And we know she's being attacked because chairs fall and they're screaming. And and then it cuts to the credits and then we go ahead to her adult life. But like that, I've never seen anything quite like that. And it's every time I watch this movie, and I've seen it a few times now, it really upsets me. It's so effective. Yeah. And it kind of, it's interesting because the rest of the movie isn't nearly as brutal. You know what I mean? And Robert, it's almost kind of silly. And we can talk about the William Wyndham dummy in the closet later if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want one of those. Oh, I <laughs> we went on, do. I right after I watched this, I went on eBay to, and I typed in <laughs> William Wyndham dummy. I could not find anything i'll keep you posted okay please. the um the raggedy ann doll also oh, i thought was a good right. touch because yes. she's painting her doll and then the doll you know you know comes back later you know in like the in the uh submerged in water like the drowned yes. father i thought was it and i think i think one of the other films that jimmy sangster wrote might maybe it's nightmare one of them also has doll imagery like that like so it's yes it's i think it is nightmare yeah, yeah. so it's it like definitely like a a shorthand, you know, loss of innocence mm-hmm. kind of kind of thing, but it's well, it's creepier as little as the is the Raggedy Ann. And, and, yeah. then, and, and then and then and then the the font of the credits, oh, the so opening good. credits, yeah. are like yeah, this child. weird sort of yeah, like a child writing, like a little bit off or something it, like that. That kind it's of makes like, oh. sense for two different reasons, um, and maybe when we get to who attacked her, we can talk about it. 
But like, it's childlike because it's, this is her story. But also when we find out who her attacker is, there's a childlike quality to him as well. Right. So like it kind of is doing two different things. It's, it's kind of telling you who's telling the story and who attacked her at the same time in a way and only within the title frame, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like a home invasion like opening, uh, but it's like yeah. a child's home. Like it's a it's a home yes. built for the you know for the age of a little girl, which is like it almost gives like a slightly. I mean, not that like guest houses are completely you know, supernatural, but it does give like a uh, you know it, do, it does give like an odd feeling like like that like that the, the the family has the big house and then the little girl has the little house, uh, right. but you know but she has like her own little world of that that world's invaded by this by this predatory man. Uh, but I, but it, it's such a um, you don't get a lot of chances for like like eerie or poetic imagery, you know, when in in the TV movie, which you know has like a lot of um, you know a, a lot of material to cover and like a short amount of time, short amount of time to shoot. But you can you can feel when they're like a certain moments, they feel like very cinematic, and that's like maybe yeah. one of the yes. more cinematic things yeah. in any of the films um, that I certainly watched, you know, preparing for this. As far as like something just is very striking and eerie. Yeah, and sure. and the the deeper you get in, you you see that um, house a couple times later in the movie, and I thought the more you see it, the more it, the deeper you get in the movie, the more it looks like um, it starts to resemble Jason's house in Friday the Thirteenth oh. Part Two, <laughs> yeah. but a much cleaner version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it becomes like a, like a just like a it becomes less of like like a fun place where a child can be, and more like something that was kind of thrown together by yeah. some jerks in the wood or something like that. It becomes it becomes more threatening as it kind of sort of becomes less threatening in the movie ish. But um yeah. <laughs> well so so then then we go to um the little girl as an adult and she's had been in Switzerland, I think, in a mental institution and now she's Barbara Parkins, so she's stunning and um and she seems pretty okay with things. Like she's kind of been able to get things together. We find out that she was catatonic or something. She didn't talk for a number of years. And so she comes home and her mom seems really happy to have her there. But now she's married uh, her friend, played by William Wyndham. Well? It feels smaller somehow. Oh, it's the same size, I assure you. Well, back then. Ed, you're back then. Hello, Harold. My dear. Doesn't she look marvelous? She looks older. I am older. So am I, my dear. A lifetime older. And why is that? Oh, would you care for a drink? No, thank you. Then you won't mind if I... Please. I'll take you to your room. The husband, you know, obviously the husband has died and everything. And, um, and things are kind of like the way they used to be. And they feel pretty normal at first, but then stuff starts happening. There's a lot of Barbara Parkins walking around in her nightgown, like a lot. Like a lot. <laughs> like when we watched No Beast, we were like, there's a lot of skiing in this. <laughs> there is there is <laughs> and so like and just for just to be skiing and i know that she needs to walk around and it's creepy and everything but there's a lot of barbara parkins walking around and, and a lot of like things that she may or may not be seeing and it kind of hits a crescendo like um, i'm just briefly going through the plot like but she does uh i think she's home one night 
and she goes into she's alone she thinks because well she overhears an argument one night of uh barbara stanwyck and william Wyndham, and if you you can kind of catch pieces of it and it mm-hmm. seemed to me that it's it's it feels like they're both in on it at that point but i don't think they were mm-hmm. i can't remember now um but like but like you, they're giving pieces of information away and but she can't really figure out what it is and then i think he's supposed to have left we think and then she's home alone one night and she goes um up into the bathroom and he's been drowned in the water and then he's not there right and so she's freaking out about all kinds of stuff and that's when roddy mcdowell shows up and kind of tries to be the voice of reason i tell you i've seen him twice and both times he was dead what makes you think he was dead he's dead i saw him like the man in the woods no 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 i haven't seen him but i knew he was there and there was someone in the house who oh i've never seen him i've just heard him breathing breathing it was the same as the same as what when I was a little girl. The day you were attacked? Uh-huh. Well, what does that tell you? What? Well, you are back where it all happened. And everything around you, everything, must uh, stimulate your memories, must make your subconscious relive the moment. Are you saying that I'm imagining all these things? <sighs> I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm I'm just asking you to be logical. You saw Harold dead in the bathtub, then he disappeared. Then you saw him dead again in the car, he disappeared again. Now, is that logical? I am suggesting that perhaps Harold has taken your father's place by marrying Miriam. Perhaps your subconscious rejects the idea. Perhaps so much so that it wants Harold to be the one who raped you. It wants Harold to be dead. And then it goes haywire, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say. Please, I, Bill. <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say, like, because I don't know when you want to touch on this, but like, you know, we talking about Jimmy Sangster, and it's like this. This does have such strong echoes of a few things that he wrote for Hammer, and I was thinking about how this kind of brings Hammer to California. Like it's it it, it mm. retains like some of the, you know, old dark house gothic trappings of, of the things he was writing for Hammer, like Nightmare. But it, but it it brings it to like an Aaron Spelling production, but in such an interesting contrast because it is mm-hmm. it feels very contemporary for its time, but it it still kind of keeps these things that, kind of tie it back to like that very English gothic horror. Um, like, you know, like Nightmare and Scream of Fear, which, you know, I know that we you know, mentioned the anecdote about him saying that he basically, you know, cannibalized his own screenplay. But like, but both of those early Hammer films have like young girls with tragic past, like visiting kind of like a, a wealthy household, uh, seeing morbid visions that are ultimately revealed to be like the conspiracy. And then the kind of the plot switch and it becomes about the villain's story, but they become know paranoid or like they like the, the, the tables are turned on them like they start mm-hmm. they start like uh seeing things themselves or like there's there's something that they don't understand about the reality now um so it, it's they all of them have that kind of, and, and and actually no place to hide has that as well yeah um 
Yes. So it's but they all feel like four very different animals if you play the, play them side by side, even though they hit similar beats. Um, yeah. And you know, Taste of Evil has like a. Uh, I mean, it almost reminded me of things like Let's Scare Jessica to Death, the things that like were like very much like oh. character-driven early '70s, right. like you know, women, uh, you know, the House of Psychotic Women kind of stories that you know someone like Kayla, you know, Janice would write about in her book, like, like right. those kind of um, character studies. But then at the same time, like it is kind of almost disorienting how you, you know, switch horses midstream in all these films where it becomes like Barbara Stanwyck's film in this for a little bit, and then it becomes like a whole. It almost reminds me of something like her like double indemnity, like she becomes like a femme fatale. Yeah, oh my god, yeah, she's all of a sudden, because at one point she's like, I've made so many hamburgers for us, and there's like three people at the house. They're like, stacked to the walls. And like, she's, can, can, oh, sorry, just real quick, I just want to say, she's like this mom. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, but she's and, not at all. And so like, when she turns that corner, it's like all that stuff that she had done in the first part of the film just gets erased. You know what I mean? Because the, yeah. the, that you can see what a facade that was. Go ahead, Dan. She has that, ice, okay. that oh. icy parting line, too. Why didn't you die? Compared to all the oh, bitchy yes. dialogue in, in Home for the Holidays, like that, it, none of them have anything as cutting as like, "Why didn't you just die?" <laughs> like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I I was gonna uh, one of the things I I um, noticed is that she because uh, Barbara Stanwyck, well, well, that's not her. What is it, uh, Miriam? Yeah. Um, she says. Um, you know, I, I believe, I believe she says, I sent the servants away apart from John, but there is like, um, uh, the, the daughter comes home and she's like, Oh, uh, what are we having for dinner? Oh, your mother said there are some cold cuts in the fridge. And then later on it's, I'm grilling some hamburgers and making baked beans. And I thought, wait a minute, you live on an, an estate that the Ewings would be jealous of. And yet you're having hamburgers and baked beans and cold cuts. I know that maybe she's not the best cook, but it always struck me as a, that that the, the couple times I watched, I was like, isn't that a little strange that she's doing that? And then when you learn later on that, when you learn what's going on later on, you think, well, maybe she's saving up the money. She doesn't want to spend the money on food. Well, when the, we talk about taste of evil, I mean, maybe her taste, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very inexpensive food and you know maybe maybe, maybe yes, exactly. there's a judgment call about that maybe. something i want to talk about and i can't remember the exact dialogue exchange but but um so as the film progresses and then we find out that she's been kind of setting up her daughter as like this gaslighting thing um she has a conversation with john who is the handyman there and it's revealed that he's the rapist and she's so nonchalant about it her yeah. own daughter's rape and to me, everything that happens in this movie, as crazy as it gets, nothing compares to that reveal and her sort of, like, response. It's like, she'd known, right? Like, there's no surprise to her. But he says, like, you, you said you would never bring that up again. And so she's known this whole time. And, and they've worked. She let him work there. Do you know what I mean? And it's like. Well, well, yeah. She said that she was glad about it because, like, the jealousy that she felt you know, at like being like number two in the eyes of her husband to his daughter, like it became like a sexual jealousy so that when she gets raped, it's like she's happy about it because, you know, it's it's evening the playing field in her mind. Like I mean, that it like it's handled so handled so matter of factly, but it's such a ghastly way to see. No, it's you know, so dark. It's just it's so... Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's like so... it's and, and even it. it... 
even in the end when when John gets um I'm I'm sorry is this spoiling something John gets shot by Barbara Stanwyck and it's like you're like oh no John for a brief second I thought that and I thought wait a minute he's a rapist why why did I just say that um and it's it's so weird because you spend so much time with her um just like looking at her going oh she is nasty and then when she shoots the slow guy who she keeps mistaking for William Wyndham on the phone I don't know I don't I don't think that would work for me <laughs> I I feel like that's a bit of a weird moment but yeah it's it's you know, no no like yeah that that is like I think you could we could dive into this for an hour about the <laughs> the the thing with the mother and the is it did did she did she go completely overboard on her daughter when she learned about the inheritance, or was she holding it in a bit when she saw how much? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, she crazy is what um, she is. is. is yeah. <laughs> she crazy. <laughs> that was the original title. It was a smorgasbord of evil, or she crazy? But they decided on a taste of evil because of the hamburgers, and they were like, "This just tastes like evil, Barbara. Don't do this." Um, so. Yeah, so but but so when you talk about like mistaking it for William Wyndham on the other end, but but Barbara Parkins mistook the William Wyndham dummy as William Wyndham, and it doesn't True. look that much like him. When they find it in the closet, you're like it's like a different color. Yes. Like it's it's not. It looks like Morty from um, what was that movie with the wooden puppet at the cabin? Oh, oh God, what's the name of that? It's not the wood. What I I know what you're talking about. Um. Oh, live something. The fear, the fear. The fear, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, like the fear, yes, the yes, fear. the fear, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, like yeah. it's clearly, it's clearly a dummy. You know what I mean? But it's just so funny, like the way it looks. And I love that they made a William Wyndham dummy. And I do wish it was somewhere in this world and we could own it oh. and put it next to like a six foot Michael Myers dummy or something. But and scare <laughs> all the children. But um, I wonder but if so, Carpenter saw this film because it's like there's a. I think this is the one where like she looks out the window and sees the. Uh, you know, yes. the, the stalker kind of observing her from the window, like below, and then she comes back, and then he's gone. It's like it, there's some like some very like proto slasher kind of yeah. touches to this. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's just it's such a beautifully made film too. Like I, I'm really obsessed with Gothic houses because as I've started watching more and more <laughs> of these TV movies, which takes so much, which take place in so many of these big houses, is that um, one of the things I was really struck by of, and don't be afraid of the dark when I was doing the commentary for that was that, you know, that they have a kitchen and you know, that they have a living room, and you know, they have a bedroom and you've seen them all, but you don't necessarily know how to get from one to the other. And yes. so when you're watching them walk around the house, there's no real sense of space. And, and that's, that's jarring, I think, because you're not real sure where like the safe space is and the not safe space. And so blah, blah, blah. That's just yeah. the thing. I think that's like an underlying anxiety that these kind of movies create. And so this I, movie, I love that. Yeah. yeah, this movie has that as well. And so like what I'm remembering, I think what she, the cold cut scene, she goes into uh, maybe the main the foyer or whatever it's called, the foyer and, um, and there's like some stairs that you never see again, right? Like in their green mm-hmm. and, and I love that the house is so big that there's parts of the house that you never see again, you know, and you know that there's a bedroom that she sleeps in and, you know, you know where the other bedroom is, but you don't necessarily know how to get from other parts of the house to those bedrooms. Yeah, and so I love, I love big houses and what this film does with that. I, and, I and if it, when, it was a she... real house or if it was um, mm-hmm. multiple locations or sound stages to, to get that. I, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, like, know. if the reason that you don't have a sense of the geography is because it wasn't a real house. I think it wasn't there because was no I think I looked up yeah. the shooting location 
and um, and I think it just said Paramount or something like that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things yeah that I love about films um, is that uh, if you can try to piece together how it works, like um, uh, several of the uh, podcasts I've done, like on Night to Dismember and Blood Lake and and iced you you can't um you try to i try to piece together what the house is that they're in and some of them you can but some of them things shift and you're never sure where you are and and that's part of that there's a disorientation to this like okay she's in the in the main room when you walk in the front door but now where is she now you know and it's 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 pretty great i i hadn't really done it with this one um but I would love to right now. I was mainly looking at the little house she was in, <laughs> you know, in the woods. So, yeah, and I, that's well, just one room. So I got that. Well, I think it's kind of like, was it Bill? You were talking about how it's uh, the difference between the two houses. Yeah. You know, and, um, and it's a kind of interesting because both houses are ominous in their own way. Um, because in the little house, there's nowhere to go. So mm-hmm. like she's stuck. And so in there's the no big place house, to hide. Yeah, there's no place to hide. Oh. And in the big house, in the big house, you're not quite sure where to go. You know what I mean? So they both have this sort of, um, what's the right word? I keep using jarring, and I know that I don't have my uh, thesaurus out to help, but it's disquieting. You know what I mean? Disqu- it kind yeah. of, it's it's that under it's that underlying level of anxiety that I think that these type of gothic movies create. And also, I mean, we could talk about it. In terms of using gothic tropes, um, you don't really necessarily see it in the characters, but you could say the houses are doppelgangers of each other, right? Which is a common gothic trope mm-hmm. because the houses are different, but they both are the keeper of dark secrets. They both have had something horrible happen in them, right? And, you know, and they're both attached to this family. So so they're actually, in a way, mirrors of each other while also being vastly different, you know? And mm-hmm. that's kind of an interesting aspect to this film. And this one also even has dialogue that talks about the house. I think there's a there's a line like John says to her, like, you should be very proud to live in a house like that. Like, it's like they're yes. they're making a big deal about the location and like, you know, the, the fact that, like, you know, they want to hold on to this property. And like, that's something that, like, comes up again in, in Strange and Deadly, too. It's like the house right. is important that they retain it. Like, someone wants to buy it. Like, no, you can't have it. Like, why is this a big it's a, deal? <laughs> like, it's because the house is it's a, it's a, yeah. symbolic. It's like a variation of, <laughs> right. like, a Amityville horror kind of thing where the – um the family in there they're like they they or or even like i was uh, maybe like this this might be stupid but like straw dogs with with dustin hoffman standing there and saying this is my house you know i i think that's robert stack um a variation you get that in strange and deadly occurrence like this is my yeah. house and i'm going to defend this yeah it's a it's a really good film i don't know that we want to go too much more into it is there anything else you guys want to yes. say about it i mean we didn't completely go into like the twist um do you guys want to like talk about that? Well, the only thing I just wanted to mention the one moment where um, she finds the body in the grass and then the hand grabs her ankle. Oh, it oh, reminded yeah. me so much of like um, like a proto. Well, I mean, this would have been after Night Living Dead, but like that kind of zombie uh, imagery mm. um, as far as like rising from the dead. And um, that was just something I thought like, like, you know, within this kind of uh, conspiracy thriller framework, like, you know, moxie is finding places to like you know uh, employ like almost like nightmare logic kind of imagery that still Mm -hmm. is grounded in in something that is like a you know 
you know, would we'd get the money too if it wasn't for you crazy kids. You know, like it still has yeah. like that kind of <laughs> that kind of like yeah. kind of very grounded wrap up kind of place it's heading to. But like within that framework, you know, he's taking advantage of like, you know, the opportunity to like do more kind of uh supernatural ish kind of imagery. Um yeah, for sure. Which I thought was an interesting touch. I mean, it, I mean, it gives it like a mm-hmm. yeah, it makes it kind of uh, you have that kind of uh, it has that kind of like early seventies kind of uh, almost like folksy horror like in places yes. like you know, yeah. the wood the wooded setting, but it still has that kind of you know grand suburban house as well. Like it's a good contrast between the, the different worlds that the character mm-hmm. is um, you know uh, lives within. Well, you bring up an interesting point because so this was made in 1971. And so we are very early, early, early into the world of the TV movie and especially really early into like when it started to really kick into gear because there were a lot of TV movies in the 60s, but not like we saw in the 70s. And um, something you were talking about that I thought was really interesting is so one of the first made for TV horror movies was an ABC movie of the week called Daughter of the Mind. And it starred um, Ray Milland and Jean Tierney in her first TV movie about two grieving parents, older but their daughter had died, um, played by Pamela Ferdin, and her ghost appears to uh, Ray Miland at one point, and it's got this famous scene in it where the ghost is talking to him, and she says, oh, daddy, I hate being dead. And it's like nobody who saw that movie when it originally aired ever forgot that. And what's interesting about the movie and what's interesting about what you brought up, Bill, is that The Daughter of the Mind is like half ghost story, half kind of espionage thriller. And mm-hmm. I think that it's that way because nobody had really – tried to make too many horror movies prior to like 1969. And I think that's when it aired. And um, so I'm not sure that the networks were sure that horror could carry itself in that format. And so, so what they did was they interspersed different genres, right Mm -hmm. into it. And so, so having the touches of the supernatural, but then also making it kind of a straight thriller, one that we're pretty familiar with is a good way for the networks to sort of test the waters of what audiences will like you yeah, know? well, this is also this is also coming like not too far after Rosemary's Baby, you know, which is yeah. another mm. film that is dealing with like, conspiracy and like yeah. is it is is it a uh, supernatural thriller? Or is it just a conspiracy? Is it just in her head? Like, and it, it like you know could be hip about it. Like it, it could, but it's also very adult, you know, and it, like yeah. re- reclaiming the horror story as something that isn't just you know famous monsters of filmland kids you know, laughing at giant bugs, things and like, I mean, because it's, it's, it's reclaiming it as like uh, adult stories, you know, and yeah, that's relatively recent at the time oh, that yeah. you're talking about the, the Moxie movies. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm so glad you're here, Bill. The, the one thing with taste of evil, apart from not understanding what the title means, uh, <laughs> apart from if it, if it means the hot dog related stuff. Um, but I was going to say the one thing about, because I did feel like when I was watching it, like, I I thought okay Jimmy Sangster has done this before, and I've been here before. But I want to see what Moxie does with it, and I think he does a good job. The one thing I was hoping for when I watched this, when I realized what it was doing, was I was hoping it would go more along the lines of an episode of Thriller, uh, the mm. Brian Clemens show, which was Clemens, what yeah. is the name of the. Yeah, is that the late night movie or what? What I forget what the name of that. Is. Oh, ABC Mystery, Wide World night. Mystery. Yes, I was because I always thought that the joy of thriller is Brian Clemens does something exactly like this, but when you get near the end, he throws in a couple of extra twists, and he and he most of the time he succeeds, 
And so I was hoping, like, like when you get near the end, it's like, oh, okay. Because I'll be honest, when I watched this movie, I was going through my mind like, okay, who could have done this to her? This person, this person, this person. Well, it couldn't have been this person. Then it probably was something related to that person. So what could it have been? And then they they kind of go off from there. So I was, I was really hoping when I was watching it, it that it would have gone kind of crazy, like in a thriller way. But I still quite enjoyed it. But um, yeah, I think it's definitely worth uh, definitely worth a watch. And maybe one day we should do a thriller related episode, Amanda. I don't know. That would be really great, and we would probably do the one with David Warbeck. Um, oh, away. sure. And maybe yes. the, uh, which has Gary Collins in it, and then maybe do the other Gary Collins one, Dial a Deadly yes. Number, because that's my favorite thriller episode. But anyway, um, yeah, I thought this was really good. The first time I saw it was when I wrote this review in 2011. I watched it while I was on the treadmill. I had this thing where I was watching a TV movie every day and walking <laughs> on the treadmill for one. I was living in Pittsburgh, and it was a great time in my life. Um, I wasn't working, so I had a lot of time to walk on the treadmill. And um, and I was discovering a lot of films that I probably should have seen before 2011. And I was really struck by this one because um, because of the twist where um, where it becomes about Barbara Stanwyck's character. And we find out that she's really the culprit behind everything. And also just a horrible person for letting her daughter go through what she went through and being so horrible about it. And it just blew me away, like what it was doing in the year that it came out because it's kind of subversive and dark and, and doing a lot of interesting things. But also, um, Stanwick is so good in it. She's so good guys. And I think I still like no place to hide better. And I do, I, this was almost a travesty to say, I kind of think Mary Hartley's better in the role that's similar to this, but Barbara Stanwick is really delightful when she gets bad, you know what I mean? And half the fun of this movie is watching her just be Barbara Stanwyck at her best to me. Um, It's just a really fabulous performance and she looks amazing in it. I feel like it does a really good job of like uh, showcasing her talent, which is interesting because, you know, she worked with Aaron Spelling a few times and he was really interested in uh, casting older actors who were having a hard time getting work um, in TV movies and on his TV shows. And he was very sympathetic to the aging actress in particular because he felt like once a woman hit a certain age, she was considered done in her career. And he really hated that. He thought that that was something that should never be. And so when you watch a lot of his movies and a lot of his TV shows, especially stuff like Love Boat, you will see a lot of these great older um, actors coming onto his show specifically because he wanted to give them good work. And I think I've said that on here before, and I probably said it just like that. But, um, But I just want to bring that out. And so... Um, he brought her basically to the TV movie. She only did three TV movies. She did one more after this called The Letters. But um, she really shines in this. And of the three TV movies, I think this is probably her best performance. Um, yeah. Bill, do you have any final thoughts about it? No, just just that. I mean, that you know, Barbara Stranwyck, I think, might be the uh, actress of, of Golden Age Studio Hollywood that had – it's debatable. I, I For me, I think of her as the one with the greatest range as far mm-hmm. as, like, she could do – like sexy screwball comedies like the lady Eve or like kind of hard boiled noir, like double indemnity or like she could do like, you know, sexy pre-code kind of movies, but, or like Capra movies. Like she was, but so like she projected real smarts and like toughness when necessary, but she could also be very like gentle and romantic. So I watched this one before watching 
House That Would Not Die, where she plays a much more sympathetic character. But even just within the two Moxie films, you can see such diversity uh, in her performance, like the, the kind of character she gets to play. Um, and just this is a, as a side note, I thinking about the character of uh, Harold, I was think the, the, the William Wyndon character, I was reminded of um, uh, Sensitive Passionate Man, um, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, later TV movie with Angie Dickinson and, you know, that kind of like self-loathing drunk uh yeah. you know character and i was thinking like you know what an interesting kind of red herring he plays that kind of character plays in this because i mean obviously he's painted to be you know the obvious culprit for the you know the opening crime um but then it's odd that he he kind of disappears from the narrative but like if you compare it to you know the disappearing father figure type characters in the earlier sangster films like they're more like benevolent and this guy is like you almost you don't almost you almost don't miss him because he seems like such a uh, a, a, a miserable and potentially dangerous character that he kind of creates a different tension than, you know, the, the, the one person that's going to make sense of all the odd goings on, which, you know, you have in something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Scream of Fear, let's say, where it's like you, you want the father to reemerge, you know, but we keep seeing what appears to be his dead body. Here it's like, uh, you know, Harold is, is, is potentially a threat himself. Um, so it's a different yeah. kind of tension. Yeah, he's really good in this too. And you know, um, it's funny every time I see William Wyndham, I always think of him as Seth Haslett from Murder She Wrote, which John Lomaxi directed several episodes for. Um, but um, yeah, so there's a connection there too. But like, um, yeah, he's interesting because he doesn't have a big part per se because he does disappear fairly early on. But he's he's interesting, and I think he does a lot with the role. And and he he does come across a little as kind of the obvious red herring because he seems like the most obvious mm. choice to be yeah. the culprit. So you're like, that can't be him. But, um, but that when I first saw this, that scene of him in the bathtub really freaked me out because his eyes are open and yes. it's, it's really creepy. We find out later it's a dummy, of course, but <laughs> I can't stop talking about the dummy because <laughs> that's something that just sticks out of my head so much. The, but, um, the mo- so yeah. yeah the, the moment that dummy shows up, it's like, Oh, a dummy. Okay, I'll I'll go with that. I'll let yeah, that like ride. Yeah, like who made yeah. that? Like who took the tow? Did she hire somebody, <laughs> or is she just doing a shop did, at night? John did that. <laughs> you know. Yeah, like... I don't think John did that. You know who John? John reminds me of the uh, the caretaker in um, To All a Good Night. Crazy. Oh, that, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought because you he, know, he does the like, same thing. I yes. like. I, he's like when he I like the I like cherry pie. Yeah, so like mm-hmm. that's who he reminds me of, and and it's horrible that he's the person that he is, and I hate John, and I'm, I'm glad he's gone. But um, yeah, yeah so um, yeah, you brought up a lot of really interesting points, Bill, that I hadn't thought about. Uh, so thank you, and Dan, you did nothing. I I I was a letdown <laughs> on this one. I did my best, but um, <laughs> sometimes it it hurts. Well, uh, but William Wyndham was but, in but Escape and Brewster McCloud. Yeah, you'll be having Brewster McCloud. You'll be having me um, think about uh, a taste of evil for some time now, like the yeah, title. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that will be my thing for this episode. Is it hot dog related? I don't know. But um, okay, so I think we covered that movie. It's hard to say. This is we don't normally do it this way, so I know we're going a little around. But we're you know what? We're changing it up and stuff. We're keeping it exciting here. Um, so I'm glad we all enjoyed that movie. Let me give you a little bit of background on Taste of Evil. That originally aired on October 12, 1971 on ABC. It ran against an NBC Sarge, which was a short-lived TV series where George Kennedy plays a priest who used to be a cop. And I need to see that show right now. 
It also um, ran against on ABC something called The Funny Side, which was a short-lived TV series that poked fun at marriage. There were sometimes musical numbers, and it was hosted by Gene Kelly. And it sounds kind of like um, Love American Style, but with like a musical component to it. Um, on CBS, it ran against Hawaii 5.0 and Canon. It seems like TV movies are always running against Canon. It feels like every time we do one of these and I do the What It Ran Against Canon shows up. A Taste of Evil did really well in the ratings. It came in number five for the week with a 27.2-41 rating. It came in at number 10 for the season out of 167 TV movies to air. By the way, Night Stalker was number one. So John Will and Moxie had at least two movies in the top ten that yes. season. Yeah, I know. It feels good, doesn't it? Um, this was an Aaron Sculling production. Um, John Will and Moxie and Spelling worked together on the following, The House That Would Not Die, which was, as I said, Stanwick's uh, debut in a TV movie, Home for the Holidays, The Last Child, which Bill uh, mentioned briefly, The Bounty Man, which starred Clint Walker, uh, The Death of Me Yet with Doug McClure and Darren McGavin, The Power Within, which starred Art Kendall as a Daredevil pilot. I think that was a pilot movie, too. Um, of course, Charlie's Angels um, and The Mod Squad. So they worked together several times. And, of course, Spelling had worked with Stanwyck on several things. I think he did. He brought her to TV originally for Zangray Theater before he started doing these more episodic uh, shows. Um, and uh, he put her on one of the – was she on the Colbys or something like that later on? And then uh, here's a couple of reviews. Kevin Thomas of the LA Times thought that A Taste of Evil was, quote, a lot of ghoulish fun. Miss Stanwyck pulls out all the stops. Judith Christ of TV Guide hated it. She wrote, you could write this site on scene, so why see it? Syndicated column, yeah. Syndicated column. There's a syndicated column from the 70s called TV Scout, and I don't know who wrote it. It was just this thing that showed up in all these different newspapers. They liked A Taste of Evil, and they said it will, quote, hold your attention even though you may figure out the end before it is revealed, end quote. Just a little brief. Uh, I think we've kind of covered Jimmy Sangster, but, you know, he's an English-born writer, best known for his association with Hamlet Studios. Um, I'm not going to read this little biography on him because it's really just throwing out a lot of titles. Um and uh, he did some TV movies, a couple more he'd worked with John Lamella Moxie on. So he um, produced and wrote the telefilm Ebony, Ivory, and Jade, which stars Burt Convy as a tennis bombs turned espionage agent, who's got these two women, Ivory and Jade, who are singers. And basically, like, they do detective work together. And it's a really crazy TV movie if you've never seen it. And, and he also uh, wrote No Place to Hide, which, again, John Lamella Moxie directed. And I found out that Sangster wrote Scream Pretty Peggy, which I think I might have known, but I didn't really take notice that I was doing this. So something that um, Bill brought up before we started recording was we were talking about Kim Newman's review of Taste of Evil. And he said that it was reminiscent of Freddie Francis's Nightmare from 1964. And um, that I made a note saying that this, of course, was reused again in No Place to Hide. But apparently uh, Newman said the Sangster in interviews misremembers this uh, remake of sorts as the taste of fear but you say you feel like it's kind of in line with taste of fear didn't you bill yeah no, i feel like it's closer to taste of, i mean it, it's it's yeah it's screaming fear taste of fear um it's it res- resembles that as much as nightmare to me i mean they both they both share you know young girl with tragic past visiting kind of a wealthy household start mm-hmm. seeing kind of morbid visions and then ultimately reveal to be conspiracy and then the 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 plot kind of switches and focuses on the uh, on the on the villainous conspirators, and then the tables are turned on them. So they they both have like a, a plot that like follows similar beats to um, Taste of Evil. 
But you, you know, while we're here, I think we could talk about. I don't know if I fully talked about what the Moxie moment is, but like a Taste of Evil, <laughs> No Place to Hide, and Home for the Holidays. And I think you mentioned one, two, Bill, that maybe I've forgotten about. They all have this sort of twist at the end where oh, No Place to Hide. Yeah, No Place to Hide, where the villain is then hoodwinked and sort of reveals themselves, and then something happens to them at the end. And it always ends with like the um, villain screaming or terrified or like, you know, like there's this expression or something that they have in almost every reveal. And it's just so, it's like a signature. But you say now that Jimmy Sangster put that in his films too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely part of the, the, the things that I saw that he wrote for Hammer, like, or, or he wrote a million things for Hammer, but like th- those two particular yeah. ones um, have, have that quality. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So it's also a Sangster moment. But Moxie moment works better with the hashtag. Yeah. On Twitter, which is how I use it. So, yeah, if if you do Sangster moment, you're gonna get people doing like Curse of Frankenstein and stuff yeah. like that. You're not gonna go to this realm. I, I, as yeah, so I keep it at the Moxie moment. And and I've never seen Scream Pretty Peggy. I know of it. That's Gordon Hessler, right? Does that have that kind of plot or no? Uh, no. Oh, no, but wow. it does have a really interesting ending. Um, you should see it. It's really quite good. Um, yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have a moxie moment type ending, but it does. But the reveal of the killer is really interesting. Um, okay. So we're seeing. I do want to say that Taste was cast by Burt Remsen. So Burt Remsen will be most familiar to Dan as Dandy Dandridge on Dallas. Probably most, what? yeah, maybe most familiar to people in the TV movie world. The only movie I can, he's been in a ton of stuff, but what I can remember him most is I think he was in Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo, is like the crotchety old guy. And so, and he always played the crotchety old guy. And what what I want to talk about Burt Ramson, I've been dying to see his name in the credits on something because he's really wonderful. So he cast a lot of TV movies, including The Last Child, Home for the Holidays, Snatched, Cry Panic, and The Great American Beauty Contest, which uh, was a very early uh movie for Farrah Fawcett before she did Charlie's Angels, and it's fantastic. Um, and Burt Ramson was an actor for many years, and he got into some kind of accident where he was almost killed. And if you watch him later in life when he returned to acting, you'll always see him with a cane. And that's because he got hurt so bad that he could never walk right, and he needed the cane afterwards. So he decided after the accident that he was just going to work in casting. And he started working with Robert Altman. And Robert Altman... What? Wait yeah, you can look him up. He worked with, a, I can't remember what films they were, but it was a lot of them. And and Robert Altman was like, you know, you should be in some of my movies. And he actually coaxed him into acting again. His book, Ramson, was really like, I don't want to put myself in danger. It was really difficult. I'm having a lot of problems. But Robert Altman eased him, oh. eased him into it, and he returned to acting because of Robert Altman, which I love. I love that story. I love that Robert Altman brought him back to us. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, he, he was the racist um, cop. Who who kind of assaults uh, Bud Cord at the zoo in Brewster McCloud, and he does have the cane. Yeah, and he's wow. Yeah, oh my gosh, he's great. He's really very. He's one great. of my yeah. favorite actors. I I used to hate him because yeah. he was always crotchety, and I was like, God, is he always <laughs> yeah. the crotchety old man? And he but he's in an episode of Leave It to Beaver, and I was like, Wow, he's gorgeous. I had no idea that Burt Ramson used to be gorgeous, and I got <laughs> curious about him. I was like, Well, how long did he act? And so I looked him up and I started reading about him and I saw that he cast all these movies and I thought, wow, he's really interesting. And then I read the Robert Altman story and I just kind of fell in love with him. And it makes you fall in love with Robert Altman too, because, you know, Bill Ramson really didn't want to act again because it was, I think, a pretty traumatic thing that happened. But under the gentle, 
guys and hand to Robert Altman, he was brought back. And we got to see him in a lot of stuff because of that. And I really appreciate that. Um, Barbara Parkins was living in London at the uh, time she made A Taste of Evil. And she said in an interview that, that making the movie was actually a combination vacation and job for her. So she was vacationing and shooting a movie, which must be the most glamorous thing you can do when you're Barbara. And then, as I said earlier, this was one of only three TV movies that Barbara uh, that Barbara Stanwyck would make. So the first, of course, was The House That Would Not Die. And then she did A Taste of Evil. And then she did one the year after called The Letters, which was all produced by Aaron Spelling. And then, of course, she would go on to do The Thornbirds, with which she would win an Emmy for. And talking about her range, Bill, it's The Thornbirds, she's really unlikable and very sympathetic at the same time in, in that part. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the Thornbirds. I'm one of the only people I know who doesn't really like the Thornbirds, but she's very, very good in it. And it was great that she won an Emmy for that. And so that's my background on A Taste of Evil, so we can go on to our next film. film was The Strange Daily Occurrence um, and uh, I guess I'll just start by saying that I love this movie. I think it's really good uh, I and I'll ask you guys the same question at the end if you which one you prefer and this one's a tough call for me but I might go with A Strange Daily Occurrence mostly because I really like the dynamic between the family um, because they feel like a legitimate family as compared to Taste of Evil which is already so broken by the time the film really kicks in but um so so just to go over the plot briefly which i sort of did in my review is this basically about a family who moves into this house out in the middle of nowhere and they really love it and they're trying to get out of the city uh kind of like that movie we covered um for an valley harper episode people across the lake this is like a, a more mm. serious uh, maybe fully realized yes. version of that where like stuff starts happening in the house and it gets to the point where they are thinking about getting rid of it, but you're right, Robert Stack really wants to hold on to it because the house is a symbol of something for him and for his family and for their for this sort of American dream that they have where you can work in the city, but you don't have to be a slave to it all the time, right? So you have this big, beautiful house in the middle of nowhere, which is like your place of respite and, and your place where you can finally go and get away from everything. And so the house is really important to them, but it's slowly falling apart with like really weird, odd things like, um, so there's this couple that stays with them for one weekend, played by Herb Edelman, and of course I can't remember the actress's name. She's great, and you've seen her and everything. And they're a married couple, and they leave the next day, and and there's a bathtub that's overflowing with water. Hello. What's going on? Yeah, Kitty. You're sitting right across from me. Hold on. Felix, what a terrific house guest you are. Chrissy says you left the plug in the tub and the water's all over the floor. Me? You were with me through law school. Do you ever see me take a bath? I'm a shower man. Not Felix, probably Audrey. Wasn't Audrey. One of the few things we have in common is a dislike for bathtubs. Showers where I keep our marriage together. It's not Audrey either. 
of course, the daughter starts seeing things at night. Like there's that really creepy scene where she's sleeping and she opens her eyes and she's uh, she's into like sewing and stuff. And so she's got this sort of mannequin with a dress on it that she's been doing some work on. And the and the the mannequin thing is kind of walking towards her right in this weird silhouette, which is really freaky. And she freaks out, obviously. And and so all this stuff starts happening, and then somebody shows up, and they want to buy the house, and so they start putting two and two together, and they're like, well, I think he's trying to scare us out of the house, and blah, 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 but it's not just that. There's other stuff happening. And at the same time, they because they're in this kind of little community, they've got the sheriff who just doesn't want to take them seriously. He thinks they're city slickers, and that it's sort of a xenophobic thing where um, they're the outsiders and they're just creating drama because they're from the city and that's what people in the city do. And he's not going to take it seriously, but he is paid by their taxes. So he will show up whenever they call. He's just not going to take a lot of their complaints very seriously. And then it all leads, like I said, in the last one to a crescendo where we find out what's really happening in the house. And then there's like kind of a weird reveal at the end. And um, like I said, uh, what I like so much about this movie is the family, like there's just scenes of them hanging out, you know, while she's working, the daughter's working on her dress and the mom's doing something else and the dad, and they're just all talking and they seem to get along really well. And there's a really, really great chemistry between the three of them that it feels like a real family to me. And so I get really involved in their plight, even though I think it's kind of hinky, the story, it works for me, but like, um, you know, it's pretty threadbare and it takes a little bit of like, uh, you know, letting just letting it flow over you. But um, but the fact that they feel so real to me really invests me in their story. And I think that the daughter who ended up, and I can't remember the actress's name, I remember her last Robert name. Robert Willick? Yeah, she's really good. She's really yeah. good. And she's up against two really, really, really strong actors already. Robert Stack and Vera Miles are extraordinary famous actors. And then she comes in and she's just as good as they are. And it's wonderful to watch just them in a room together. And as a matter of fact, if the movie had just been about the family hanging out, I might've enjoyed it all the same. I just think it's a really good movie. Um, so have either one of you guys seen this before? No. And this is, this is actually the no. one that I started with. Oh, great. Okay. So let's start with you, Bill. Well, yeah, no, I, I really like this a lot. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if I, I can say which one I prefer between the two. I mean, I like them in, you know, for different reasons. Um, this one, I mean, it reminded me more of a haunted house movie. It reminded me of things like Amityville Horror and, and Something Evil, the, the TV movie that yeah. Spielberg made. Um, and I, I think maybe I find it a little dissatisfying when it does become the the talking killer kind of, you know, yeah. uh, thing at the end. But it's OK. I mean, it's not a big component of the film. I th- but I, I think that, like, I did want to mention that Margaret, Margaret Willock, who plays Melissa, not Mel, Melissa, um, you know, her her quirky kind of uh, comedic timing uh, adds a lot to yeah. kind of makes the scenes kind of pop and gives them kind of a modern feel. I mean, because someone like Robert Stack, you know, especially, I mean, I think for children of the 80s might just hear his voice and think of unsolved mysteries. Yes, <laughs> But I sure. mean, even if I don't think of that, I think of things like Written on the Wind and like Douglas Sirk movies. Like I think of him as like old Hollywood personified. So when, sure. you know, you get someone like, the daughter, like it, it you know, um, you know, Margaret Willick's kind of, uh, kind of contemporary slang kind of daughter. I, I, it gives it like a, like a kind of a pop to it. Like it, 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 um, yeah, I, I thought it had like, um, you mentioned that moment with the, um, like the clothes dummy appearing to walk. Even the, um, the, the sequence where, um, 
I think you mentioned this too, where um, the the the, uh, the teenage daughter is sunbathing and she's being observed oh, by yeah. like the silhouette. Um, and like I like that he's gripping tissues as he's watching her, which makes it even more disgusting. Yeah, I never <laughs> um, thought of that. Yes, you're right. You know, he uh, says to her, "I'm just looking," and you're like, "Well, what are you looking at?" Right. Because he's he's trying to say he's looking at the house, but it has this whole double entendre to it that adds a real creep factor to him. Yeah. And and the sauna scene also seemed to suggest something like the shower scene in This House Possessed, which I know is one of your favorites. And it reminded me of that scene a little bit. The uh, you know, when she's trapped in the sauna in this, the mother. Yeah, no, I I, I think that it's yeah, like it's. It's not as scary as like a good haunted house movie, but it's but like it's a really appealing group of characters that like it has such an atmosphere to it and sense of time and place and a sense of location that I I didn't mind that it wasn't as uh, terrifying as like the things that it kind of superficially resembles, like, you know, things like Amityville Horror. Um, it, it, It does feel like. Like parts of it feel almost like a slasher movie, like with the heavy breathing and the killer's POV and like the, mm. you know, assailant sneaking into the house at night. I think the fact that like it's playing with both supernatural and slasher movie kind of imagery, but then it's ultimately about like a guy that just trying to steal some money. <laughs> you know, it it, it it it's it, it it's it's almost like it's building towards climax that feel like a little anticlimactic, but at the same time, it's like. You know that actor is it? Who's is it? Is it Bill McKinney? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it's like such a good actor that like it doesn't even matter. It, it reminds me of like Friday Thirteenth, where it's like you introduce this character who's never even been seen until yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's, right. that's exactly what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Now I have to admit, Michael, you had me going a couple of times. You know that dog was a problem, Michael. And Gilgreen, that idiot, that quack. He comes looking for me with a gun. No more Gil Green. <laughs> Michael, you know that I have an IQ of one five five. Can you beat that? I'm a genius, Michael. And I got a grade ten education, and I spent ten years in prison. I bet you don't come close to my IQ, and you're a big shot lawyer. How about that, Michael? <laughs> but he's such a, a powerful actor that's like, okay, well then now, now this is what the movie is. So I, I go with it, like it. Like I don't want to say like I'm putting down. I don't want to sound like I'm putting down the last act, but it just like it becomes a different kind of thing. Yeah, it does. You know, uh, it's interesting that what you were talking about because something I've talked about on here several times, um, and I'll use Father Dowling as my example because that's the one I always end up using. The thing or murder she wrote is another good example. It's like a cozy mystery in a way because really it's not so much about the story as it is just about watching the actors do their thing. And so, like when I watch Father Dowling. I love Father Dowling because it relaxes me almost to the point where I can't keep my eyes open. And that's not that it's boring. It's that I, I'm so familiar with the actors and the stories that it's so comforting. And my brain actually like finally quiets down and I, I feel restful when I watch it. And what I mean is like, I just like to watch the actors do the driving. I just let them get behind the wheel and take me to wherever they're going to go. And I think that this film does that in a really delightful way for me, you know, so, so I, I care about them. 
you know, but I'm willing to take whatever happens because I just want to watch them keep going, you know, as a family unit and watch the dynamic between them. So, Dan? I, I will say the the one thing about the Melissa character is I liked her quite a bit, but there were a few times where I thought she was um, channeling Kim Hunter um, from... Oh, you don't uh, like Kim Hunter, Bad, do you? <laughs> Bad Ronald or the Magician. Well, there, there, I, I do like some Kim Hunter stuff, but there are occasional things, like if you've seen the Magician TV movie, like throughout it, she's like, oh, is, are you going to find my daughter? And it's like, what are you doing there, Kim? What What is that you're up to? And there are a few moments where I feel like Melissa has gone to the Kim Hunter method acting school. I don't, it doesn't bother me, but it is something I see. And I'm like, hmm, okay, th there's that. And it is great to see Robert Stack because to me, I always expect to see a scene where Robert Stack has a pair of sunglasses on and he says there's something important going on and he takes off the sunglasses and then he has another some pair of sunglasses underneath that and he's doing a little airplane and I'm like <laughs> yes there you go and the thing about Robert Stack is I don't um I was I I liked him but the thing with Robert Stack is that to me he's very I, I don't I don't quite know how I um rate the level of macho for my 70s guys. Um, David Jansen, I always put pretty macho. But for some reason, I think Robert Stack is a level above David Jansen. Maybe a level too high. But but there is something about... Like, like when you can go up against LQ Jones in scene after scene, you're pretty macho. And I love LQ Jones' character because... He um and we talked about Alvy Moore in the previous episode. That's right. And he and El and the two of them were were produced movies together in the late sixties, yep. early seventies. And <laughs> you look at LQ Jones, and then you think of Hank Kimball, and you think of them making movies together, and that seems like the strangest thing ever. But it happened. Um, the thing I love about LQ Jones is that even th there's like a moment where they think everything's solved. And uh, Robert Stack's character says, thank you. And he says, I didn't do anything. I know. And L.Q. Jones is like, hmm. And then the final time when everything's done, like L.Q. Jones has some people tear up Robert Stack's lawn. And like, aren't you going to have them fill that in? Ah, maybe in a few months. And then he leaves. So it's like this weird <laughs> thing where like, I didn't, I didn't do my job, but now that, the job is done and your wife took care of it in her own special way. I'm going to treat you like a jackass still, even though you did that. And there's something, there's something I like and something weird about, about that sort of uh, dynamic. Although possibly I, 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 I would have, I like, I like his uh, 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 sheriff in the episode, but I almost thought it got a little Night Strangler-y to me, where there are a few too many scenes of Vincenzo and um, Kolchak arguing. Yeah. I thought there were, there were maybe like, eh, maybe we're having a few too many scenes of him. Like, because there's a moment, I forget, I forget what moment it is, where Robert Stack's character storms out and Vera Miles says, should I call, you should call the sheriff. And he says, you call the sheriff, which to me is like, you shut up. 
you know, not like you, you should do this, <laughs> but like, you know, you shouldn't, but then she calls the sheriff and he shows up and I'm like, we, do we need the sheriff here every time? Because we know he's not going to do anything. And after a time, it felt a bit, that felt a little bit like not quite padding, but it felt a bit like, okay, I got it. We can carry on. Um, uh, uh, I think I, I do like the family quite a bit. I like, and I, 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 like I said earlier, I like the feeling that it is very much heavy breathing, Black Christmas style, um, with a certain lens on it as the camera is moving towards the house. But I kept hoping that it wasn't a guy. I really did keep hoping it was something else. But it was the I, guy but then from when the guy Sheep Freak. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And so when the guy shows up, he's great. I mean, he is screwball. And I love the fact that when the guy shows up, he hates Michael, Robert Stack's character, so much. He's never met him, <laughs> but he hates him. But he spends the whole scene going like, hey, Michael, what about this? Hey, I have a higher IQ than you do. Hey, I have oh, this. Right. I have that. It's like, and it's like, it's this weird stuff like, mm, I don't know who I prefer, the mother or the daughter. And it's like, these two films are pretty sleazy at the end of the day. Yeah. They're, they're very, but except like um, Taste of Evil is sleazy at the beginning-ish. And this one is more sleazy near the end. And there's just this thing where I, I would even like, if someone came to my home who had been watching my family, oh, heaven forbid, I, I don't mean to say that out loud, but if they showed up and suddenly knew who I was and could say like, oh, yes, Dan, I know you take a shower at 7 a.m. every morning on the weekdays and we've been looking at, you know, it's like, oh, God. You know, it's like this is, this is, um, eh. Ooh, yeah, it's it's a weird, it's a weird moment, and how much he, like I said, how much he hates, he he seems to hate Michael, is just so, and he doesn't really like he he, um he sort of he doesn't quite speak to the women, he kind of is like this is your daughter, oh, oh your wife's attractive, but mostly he's like going after Michael. And and mainly it's like you're a high-powered lawyer, and I have this high IQ, and I went to tenth grade, you know. And it's it's just it's this weird. I would have, part of me would have liked to have known a little bit more about that guy, and part of me is just fine with what we learned about that guy. So I I don't am I I was gonna say I I can't remember is he also the the gang leader that actor. From Fight for Your Life? Am I misremembering? No, no, no. That's uh, from Larry. No, Dillon that's Dillon. um. Yes, yes, that's yeah, yeah. From New okay, Heart. um, yeah. the guy from New Heart. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm mixing up because I was yes. thinking about like that ending. Savage it, weekend. It feels yeah. like a home invasion ending, but it's all in the yard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yard like invasion. It. You know they did. You know. You know, when genres begin, they're never quite the same as when they're in full tilt. So the Yard Invasion was a thing in 1974. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the but, original but, title, The Yard Invasion. But then they yes, were like, we don't yeah, like the and, font with that. And so <laughs> what about A Strange and Deadly Occurrence? Ooh. Mm, ooh, yeah. So so, so in the end, I, I quite like it. Um, I, it. It's one of those that the first time I watched it, I was really into it. The second time when I sort of knew what was happening, 
it gets sleazier when you when you realize it's not like an alien or a ghost, but it's, it's just some creepy, skeezy guy. Yeah. yeah, it's creepy. I I don't know. A third viewing, I don't know. But um, I I I think it works, and I think um. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just like Robert Stack being the dad. He's a bit too macho for me. Like, I don't want to say like I wanted Wally Cox to be the dad, but I, I just felt like maybe we could go down a level, or so, like Dustin Hoffman and Straw Dogs or something. Or like Dustin that. Hoffman in a Strange and Deadly Occurrence. Why not? There you go. I don't yeah. know why that but didn't Dustin happen. Hoffman would never. Dustin Hoffman would never name his dog Adolf. Oh, that's right. Oh, well, yeah, God, we should talk he, about the dog yeah, no. because the dog just yeah. barely makes it into the film, right? Like he's there for like ass. a scene, and then that's it. Uh, and it's so upsetting because, yes. because I expected the dog to be around for a while, like for them to love it a little and it to get into like <laughs> I live here, this is my home, guys. Hey, I'm protecting. No, yep. no, he's gone. Like three what minutes the, later. That's one of those things where it's like you can't kill the mom, the dad, or the daughter. So you have to bring in something yeah. else. Yeah. And so you kill a dog, which I was not terribly thrilled with. Yeah, I with. don't love that. Um, but they did it in Halloween, you know. Sure, sure. And Jaws. Yeah. Pippin. Pippin was <laughs> never seen again. And that was very upsetting. Yeah. Pippin. Pippin. That's like the hardest scene for me to watch in that entire film. Not the kid getting eaten, yeah. but the idea of the dog. But yeah, I totally yeah, forgot about you know, Adolf. And I don't think we made the ending so explicit. But like, it turns out like somebody had buried some money in the yard but the but the twist is is that there had been some reconstruction in the house. Is that right, or on the property? And so yes, the well, the well had been. Yeah, moved. but what's yes. so great about the opening, though? Um, and now we spoiled it. It's not supernatural, but the daughter tells a story about the property, right? Don't tell me a word about burglars out here in Shangri-La. Oh, sure. I'm sure somebody's going to drive all this way just to steal my zircon rings and my cultured pearls. <laughs> We're in the country, Felix. If you don't want furry little visitors, you don't extend the invitation. Maybe the visitors are something else. Ah, well, the kind of visitors you're talking about don't need open windows. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a rumor. I'm afraid Melissa's gotten a hold of a little local legend. Mom, it is historical fact. Our history teacher told us all about it. There used to be a Spanish mission right here. And back in 1884, a man named Creel brought his wife to the mission. She was suffering from typhoid, and she died, and he went berserk. He murdered the priest, and he set fire to the mission with himself inside of it. They say that, that some nights you can hear him moaning for his wife. Some nights you can hear me moaning for my wife. <laughs> Felix, that's not funny. No, everybody else laughed. <laughs> okay, so so we enjoyed both films, which is wonderful. Um, let me go ahead and give you some background on Strange and Deadly Occurrence. Um, I'll tell you, as I said, when I read the review, it aired on September 24th, 1974. It aired on NBC as part of the Wide World premiere movie, which was just like Born Innocent. It aired the same year as Born Innocent and probably very close together, actually. Um, we ran against on ABC a TV movie called The Great Niagara with Jennifer Salt and Richard Boone. Now, I haven't seen this, but here's the synopsis. It sounds amazing. An embittered old man is obsessed with conquering the Niagara River and Niagara Falls. He endangers his son's lives by forcing them to challenge the falls by going over them in a barrel. That's the movie. <laughs> I, I, I need to see it. I need to see it. Um, on CBS, it ran against MASH in Hawaii Five-0. 
It didn't do great in the ratings. It got a 20.6 slash 31, which sounds like good numbers. Uh, the rerun of that year got a 13.6 slash 24, but it only came in at number 166 out of 251 telefilms. So a little bit past the halfway point um, there. Uh, the Great Niagara um, did a little better. It got a 14.6 slash 22 coming in at, I must have that number wrong when I said 31. It must be 21, um, coming in at 136. Now, if I found out that Richard Boone was forcing his son to go over the Niagara Falls in a barrel, I probably would have watched it that night too. So, sorry, strange and deadly occurrence. <laughs> Just more alluring. So, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times said, that he thought the directing in The Strange and Deadly Occurrence was deft, and he enjoyed the cast, and he said the film worked up a few chills. Um, this movie was uh, released on VHS through a company called World Vision Enterprises. Um, they used to be a part of ABC, but were ordered to split by the FCC. I think it was something to do with cross-ownership. I think that there was, I don't understand that, cross-ownership. I understand what it means, but I don't know if I could explain it. But um, I think the FCC stepped in on things like that, and they made these companies separate from the major companies world uh, vision enterprises decided to become a producer of sorts and offered to help other companies finance telefilms one of their first ventures was something called kodiak uh the strange and deadly occurrence was their first venture with charles freeze and alpine productions so charles freeze is amazing and i didn't write a little bio on him but i did talk about him on another episode and i can't remember which one now but he's he's still alive he's in his 90s he's produced every tv movie that aaron spelling didn't produce basically Vera Miles and Herb Edelman were also in Smash Bender State 5, which we brought up, and they shared some scenes on that. Bill McKinney was in the China Lake Murders and on She Freak, which I wrote down here again because I'm obsessed with him being on She Freak. This was Margaret Will. I love She Freak. I do too. Well, he's got that great line on, I'm a man and you're a man. Now get up on that stage and do your stuff. And that's what I'll always uh. love him for. This was Margaret Willock's second role on TV. Her first was another TV movie called Remember When that aired earlier in the year, and it starred Jack Warden. It was a drama. Um, after The Strange and Daily Occurrence, she would make two more TV movies, The Last Survivors, which was with Martin Sheen. I think that's a remake of an older film, like a theatrical. And she was in Cage Without a Key, which starred Susan Day. It's a kind of a woman in prison, born innocent ripoff that's quite good. I really like it. Robert Stack was interviewed for making this movie. Um, and here I found this newspaper article, and they wrote, Stack relished his role in The Strange and Deadly Occurrence because of its contrast with his portrayal of the iron-hearted Elliot Ness of The Untouchables. Quote, Ness was a genuine hero. Bob thinks a man who was who was totally courageous. Oh, so he calls Robert Sack Bob. Okay, that was confusing. And then Robert Sack goes on to say, the man I play in The Strange and Deadly Occurrence was just a Joe citizen trying to protect his family under circumstances totally new to him. His growth as he tries to cope with the desperate situation is interesting, end quote. The NBC mystery thriller will present Stark on television for the first time since the demise of the name of the game. So this was the first time he showed back up on TV after many years. Um, and if Dan's already mentioned L.Q. Jones and Alvy Moore connection. Um, we talked about Alvy Moore in the last episode because he was in Cotton Candy. And they did together Boy and His Dog, which L.Q. Jones directed, Brotherhood of Satan and The Witchmaker. Um, in 1955, they appeared in the Annapolis story together. And they also appeared in a 1974 TV movie called Mrs. Sundance, which I think was a pilot and sort of a sequel to um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, but from the wife's point of view. Uh, so those are Montgomery that I haven't seen yet. L.Q. Jones' birth name is Justice McQueen, and he attended UT here at Austin. What? Yeah, the campus I work at, L.Q. Jones, walked those halls. And did you know that for a year that he attended UT, his roommate was Fess Parker? And he was apparently the first to be offered the part that Slim Pickett's took in Dr. Strangelove. L.Q. Jones said he ended up being um, tied to another picture and couldn't accept the role, but he felt that Pickens was perfect in the part and wouldn't want to have anybody else in that role. 
Um, Vera Miles worked with John Lola Moxie three times. That's um, Strange and Daily Currents, Smash Up Interstate 5, and the Murder, She Wrote episode, Jessica Behind Bars. Um, that would be the second to last thing that Vera Miles would do before she retired. And Murder, She Wrote was the last thing that John Lola Moxie worked on before he retired. Also, Robert Stack appeared in that live production of Laura that John Lola Moxie directed that I referenced earlier. Um, so there's a lot of ties here to uh, the people working together over and over again, which is really interesting. Um, and I guess not that surprising. Um, so let's uh, let's go to our feedback. We don't have a lot. Uh, I did get an email today from someone named Glenn. Uh, he wrote, hey there, Mayhem Makers. Thanks for spotlighting John Moxie's great career. From these two, I preferred The Strange and Deadly Occurrence over Taste of Evil. The sense of menace throughout Occurrence was more effective and kept ratcheting up the tension. Ratcheting, I'm sorry, ratcheting up the tension. Although when the villain gets a whack near the end, his squeal sounded quite funny. Sounded like someone hitting Adam Ant. Wonder if he made the same sound in Deliverance. All-time faves from Moxie, The Night Stalker from 1971, No Place to Hide, 1981, Sue Amy Soon, You'll Get a Plum Roll on Dynasty, he wrote. <laughs> Escape from 1971, the Christopher George, A.B. Schreiber team-up, you didn't know you yes. needed until you experienced this one. And finally, The City of the Dead, a.k.a. Horror Hotel from 1960. Moody, black and white, Christopher Lee witchcraft. Not only is this great... Is this a great atmospheric fright? But the DVD Blu-ray bonus materials have the most Moxie commentary interviews for your money. So now I didn't know that, I told him, and I was really excited about that. Did Moxie beat Hitchcock Psycho to the punch back in 1960? See this one and decide for yourself. Wishing you all the best, Glenn Ibe. Uh, thanks, Glenn. This was a really great email. Thank you, Glenn. And I need to pick that up because I have actually never seen John Lola Moxie speak. And I do know... Um, I did the commentary with Justin Kurzweil for Nightmare in Badham County, which is coming out at the end of October. And they, uh, Kino Lorber, who's releasing it, does have actually an interview with John Lamella Moxie on it. And I'm beside myself. Being on the same disc as him is like the greatest thing that's ever yes. happened. Such oh, amazing. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. so excited. Yes. So, <laughs> on Facebook, Matt Bateman wrote, Moxie's gravestone should have the same... Should have his name in the murder she wrote, she wrote font, which I thought was really funny and probably very true. <laughs> uh, Jeff Keller wrote, Love, Taste of Evil. I first saw it as a child and it terrified me. When I saw it later as an adult, I found it very creepy and disturbing. The rape of a child is about as horrific as anything can be. I would love to see it again, hopefully with a proper Blu-ray release. Barbara Stanwyck is wonderful and campy. Barbara Perkins, uh, Barbara Perkins is terrific. On Instagram, Life Through Ashley Eyes wrote, Two of my favorite horror TV movies, Love, Robert Stack. So that was our feedback, which we really appreciate. So thank you, everybody, for sending something in. Thank you. And that's the end of our show. So here's what I will tell you um, is coming up. I won't mention the guests yet because we haven't lined up the dates, and I'm not positive they're going to be able to make it. But we are going to be doing car porn, small screen style. So we're going to cover Death Car on the Freeway and Gladiator, which is an Abel Ferreira TV movie. What? I just stumbled on it. It's on Amazon. If anybody wants to watch it, it stars Ken Wall from Wise Guy and that really cute, rebellious kid on Head of the Class, whose name I can't remember. Um, and it's really very interesting. Um, and Death Car on the Freeway was directed by Hal Needham, so we actually have two basically theatrical directors yeah. making TV movies, so that should be pretty interesting. Um, and that'll be coming towards the end of November. And when when I get the guests confirmed with our dates and everything, then I'll go ahead and announce it. But we have a really great person showing up uh, for that. I can't say too much because I didn't get an okay from uh, my partner, but um, I did a project with another podcaster that's TV movie related, and we're going to be cross-pollinating. 
and that's going to be happening really soon and i will make more announcements about that on social media when it happens i was going to do it tonight because i think we're both covering death car on the freeway at different times and i wanted to try to align it together but uh i haven't heard back whether or not his schedule works with mine also we'll be doing a contest uh i'll be giving away some blu-rays uh, given to me by one of the distributors that I've done commentaries for, but I don't want to say too much until I have the Blu-rays in my hand. And I'll also be doing that over social media. Um, it's going to be a really, really great, cool uh, item, and I'm super excited about it. And if you would like to tell us how you feel about Death Car on the Freeway or Gladiator or anything else, any other TV movies, you have comments about the show or whatever, here's how you can reach us. On Twitter, we're at TV Mayhem Podcast. Just go on Facebook and look for the Made for TV Mayhem show. Uh, go to at Made for TV Mayhem for Instagram. You can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com, or you can visit our website, tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. And so here we just sort of briefly talk about what we have coming up. Um, I think this is coming out right around the time that uh, my Kino Lorber Nightmare in Badham County commentary is coming out, which I just mentioned, which I did with Justin Kurzweil. Um, and there's a John Lennon Moxie interview on there, like I just said. So that should be worth picking up. That's a great film if you haven't seen it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It gets better every time I watch it. And I'm so honored uh, that I got to do the commentary for it. I also um, just did a commentary for Warner Archives for Don't Be Afraid of the Dark that just came out. Yes. It looks beautiful oh yes the movie looks amazing um if you listen to the commentary i really hope you enjoy it um and the made for dv mayhem show got together and we did our first commentary together which is amazon oh boy covered in 1984 (laughs) really strange paul michael glazer tv movie called amazon and we had a really great time (laughs) doing it and that's coming out december 3rd through kino lorber so uh keep your eyes out for that and bill and i have a project that we did together but we can't say anything about it quite yet so, oh, hell's bells. Yeah. So, Dan, what do you have going on? Hey. Uh, yeah. Adventure uh, uh, Super Train. Uh, we are on episode 78-ish. Amanda, you and I are getting near the end of Masquerade. We've got a few episodes left. Uh, Amy the Conqueror and myself are getting near the very end of Erie, Indiana. And Mitchell, Hadley, and myself are still knee-deep in Bourbon Street Beat, uh, which is about to enter the W. Hermanos episodes and if you know who made bourbon street beat and you know you're spanish and you know hermanos and you know w you'll (laughs) might be able to figure out what's going on there it's a it's a really weird story that i didn't know about until about two weeks ago when mitchell and i a weird ass thing that I'm not going to tell you what studio did it, but you could probably figure it out already. Uh, they did a really weird thing involving writer's credits and rewriting mm. things, uh, which is really odd. Um, and Mitchell and I, in shortly, we are about to cover those episodes, which sadly kind of denigrate a show we've adored for the past year. Um, but uh, there's that, and... I just posted a Rockin' All Week with You Happy Days podcast episode where I talk with Joanna Wilson from Christmas TV History. Uh, Yay, our guest for the past three years on this show at Christmas, talking about Guess Who's Coming to Christmas, the great Happy Days second season episode, which is one of my favorite episodes of anything. And and, uh, apart from that, I'm just kind of hanging around, writing, working on my new book. 
which um, I have to do some revisions on right now, the Henningverse book. But, um, yeah, yeah, just hanging around, waiting for the next Made for TV Mayhem show to begin. The clock has started running. Yeah. Oh, the pressure's on. The pressure's on. Oh. And so, Bill, tell us what you've been doing. Mostly just guest appearances on other people's shows lately. I, uh, my, my show, Supporting <laughs> Characters, has been on hiatus since uh, the summer. Um, but you can find my old episodes at www.nowplayingnetwork.net slash supporting characters. Um, I just did a couple of episodes of the Projection Booth podcast. Um, one on Fate to Black oh, wow. just came out. Uh, and I think, I don't know when this episode that we're doing now drops, but I think the one on Messiah People will also be out oh, by then. so good. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Yeah, and that one is, good. I mean, they're both pretty exciting. I mean, Messiah Evil is, uh, Maitland McDonough is on there, and uh, so is uh, Willard Hike, the director. Wow. And then The wow. Fate to Black has Dennis Christopher and Erwin um, oh. Yablons, the producer, a um, bunch of people. Oh, uh, wow. uh, oh what's his name? Uh, Tim Thomerson. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's great. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. it's it's wow. it's pretty. I mean, as a Fade to Black fan, it's got more background information. Yes, on Fade to Black than any home video release ever had. Oh um, wow! So, wow. Um, I, I was on something that I don't know when it's coming out. But it's like, it sounds kind of like one of those um, minute by minute <laughs> kind of shows, like the kind that uh, Dan you've done on on um, uh, Ice Dead. Yes. Uh, but like um, there's one that's coming out on Texas Chainsaw Massacre called oh. Texas Minute Massacre. Um, oh, wow. And I did an episode of that. They, they chose a good movie. Yeah. Um, I have no idea when that's dropping because I know the, the creator of it just had a child. <laughs> so I know he's been kind of preoccupied with that. But um, I did an interview for that and that's coming out at some point. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. And then another oh. thing that we can't talk about yet. Yes. Oh, and Bill, if if you're if you're a fan of Fade to Black with Dennis Christopher, I would recommend you watch the film Didn't You Hear if you haven't seen it. I haven't with seen Dennis it. Christopher and Dennis Christopher and Gary Busey from the early seventies. They're it, they're super young, and it's an all synthesizer score, and it's a really weird ass film. Okay, I recommend it highly. I, I, Didn't you hear? Uh, it's a joy. I will I will I will seek it out. Okay, so here awesome. we are at the end. We talked a lot more Moxie than I thought we would, which pleases me immensely. <laughs> Yay! Yay! And we'll probably be covering more of his films, obviously, because he did so many of them. And it's just a matter of... Escape! Escape. Yes, it's just a matter of time <laughs> before we uh, hit on him again. Um, so, so thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I We didn't make it as scary as we could have, but hopefully the lightning um, gave you all some... Uh, some audience for the night and we will see you next month. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. Good night. Good night.